Chapter One of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe. The Telltale Heart. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how the first idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Huh, would a man-man have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight, but I found the eye was always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moved more quickly than mine did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he had not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as dark as pitch with the thick darkness, 
for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, It's merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him, and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it, you cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out of the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is, but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker, and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. 
yet for some minutes longer i refrained and stood still but the beating grew louder louder i thought the heart must burst and now a new anxiety seized me the sound would be heard by a neighbor the old man's hour had come with a loud yell i threw open the lantern and leaped into the room he shrieked once once only in an instant i dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him i then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done but for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound this however did not vex me it would not be heard through the wall at length it ceased the old man was dead i removed the bed and examined the corpse yes he was stone stone dead i placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes there was no pulsation he was stone dead his eye would trouble me no more if still you think me mad you will think so no longer when i describe the wise precautions i took for the concealment of the body the night waned and i worked hastily but in silence first of all i dismembered the corpse i cut off the head and the arms and the legs and then i took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings i then replaced the boards so cleverly so cunningly that no human eye not even his could have detected anything wrong there was nothing to wash out no stain of any kind no blood spot whatever i had been too wary for that a tub had caught all ha 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 when i had made an end of these labors it was four o'clock still dark as midnight as the bell sounded the hour there came a knocking at the street door i went down to open it with a light heart for what had i now to fear there entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police a shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night suspicion of foul play had been aroused information had been lodged at the police office and they the officers had been deputed to search the premises i smiled for what had i to fear i bade the gentlemen welcome the shriek i said was my own in a dream the old man i mentioned was absent in the country i took my visitors all over the house i bade them search search well i led them at length to his chamber i showed them his treasures secure undisturbed in the enthusiasm of my confidence i brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while i myself in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim the officers were satisfied my manner had convinced them i was singularly at ease they sat and while i answered cheerily they chatted of familiar things but ere long i felt myself getting pale and wished them gone my head ached and i fancied a ringing in my ears but still they sat and still chatted the ringing became more distinct it continued and became more distinct i talked more freely to get rid of the feeling but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers, 
heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And yet the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no! They heard, they suspected, they knew! They were making a mockery of my horror! This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear these hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. End of The Telltale Heart Chapter 2 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar Of course I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of Mr. Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desire of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had farther opportunities for investigation, through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society, and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations, and very naturally of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts as far as I comprehend them myself. They are succinctly these. My attention for the last three years had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago it occurred to me, quite suddenly, that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen, first, whether in such condition there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence, secondly, whether if any existed it was impaired or increased by the condition, thirdly, to what extent or for how long a period the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity, the last in especial, from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend, Mr. Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica, and author, under the nom de plume of Issachar Marx 
of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. Mr. Valdemar, who has resided principally at Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person. His lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter in consequence being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous, and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed thysis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution, as a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was of course very natural that I should think of Mr. Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and to my surprise his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination and death and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about twenty-four hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from Mr. Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P., you may as well come now. D. and F. are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, the eyes were utterly lusterless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive, the pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocket-book. He was propped up in the bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for eighteen months in a semi-oceous or cartilaginous state, and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. 
the right in its upper portion was also partially if not thoroughly ossified while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercles running one into another several extensive perforations existed and at one point permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place these appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date the ossification had proceeded with a very unusual rapidity no sign of it had discovered a month before and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days independently of the thysis the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta but on this point the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible it was the opinion of both physicians that mr valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow sunday it was then seven o'clock on saturday evening on quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself doctors d and f had bidden him a final farewell it had not been their intention to return but at my request they agreed to look in upon the patient about ten the next night when they had gone i spoke freely with mr valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution as well as more particularly of the experiment proposed he still professed himself quite willing and even anxious to have it made and urged me to commence it at once a male and a female nurse were in attendance but i did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people in case of sudden accident might prove i therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night when the arrival of a medical student with whom i had some acquaintance mr theodore l l relieved me from farther embarrassment it had been my design originally to wait for the physicians but i was induced to proceed first by the urgent entreaties of mr valdemar and secondly by my conviction that i had not a moment to lose as he was evidently sinking fast mr l l was so kind as to accede to my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred and it is from his memoranda that what i now have to relate is for the most part either condensed or copied verbatim it wanted about five minutes of eight when taking the patient's hand i begged him to state as distinctly as he could to mr l l whether he mr valdemar was entirely willing that i should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition he replied feebly yet quite audibly yes i wish to be i fear you have mesmerized adding immediately afterwards deferred it too long while he spoke thus i commenced the passes which i had already found most effectual in subduing him he was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead but although i exerted all my powers no farther perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock when doctors d and f called according to appointment i explained to them in a few words what i designed and as they opposed no objection saying that the patient was already in the death agony i proceeded without hesitation exchanging however the lateral passes for downward ones and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer 
By this time his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. This condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although a very deep sigh, escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, its stertorousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleep-waking, and which it is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes I made the lids quiver, as in incipient sleep, and with a few more I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously and with the fullest exertion of the will, until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer, after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loin. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine Mr. Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D. resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F. took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L. L. and the nurses remained. We left Mr. Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning, when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F. went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position. The pulse was imperceptible, the breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached Mr. Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such, experiments with this patient had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But to my astonishment, his arm very readily although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. "'Mr. Valdemar,' I said, "'are you asleep?' He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips, and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering, the eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of the ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them in a barely audible whisper issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleep-waker again. 
Do you still feel pain in the breast, Mr. Valdemar? The answer now was immediate, but even less audible than before. No pain. I am dying. I did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., who came a little before sunrise, and expressed unbounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep-waker again. I did so, saying, Mr. Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Yes, still asleep, dying. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish, of the physicians that Mr. Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present, apparently tranquil condition, until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleep-waker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular hectic spots, which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek, went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth, which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk leaving the mouth widely extended, and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of Mr. Valdemar at this moment, that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in Mr. Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses, when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice, such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are indeed two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable for the simple reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation. 
is well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance, or from some deep cavern within the earth. In the second place, it impressed me, I fear indeed that it will be impossible to make myself comprehended, as gelatinous or glutinous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both of sound and of voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully, thrillingly distinct, syllabification. Mr. Valdemar spoke, obviously, in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, Yes, no, I have been sleeping, and now, now, I am dead. No person present even affected to deny, or attempted to repress, the unutterable, shuddering horror which these few words, thus uttered, were so well calculated to convey. Mr. L. L., the student, swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber, and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. For nearly an hour we busied ourselves, silently, without the utterance of a word, in endeavors to revive Mr. L. L. When he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of Mr. Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects, as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention, too, that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed Mr. Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleep-waker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L. L. In the afternoon we all called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by so doing. It was evident that so far death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken Mr. Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From this period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at Mr. Valdemar's house, accompanied now and then by medical and other friends. All this time the sleeper-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. 
it was on friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening or attempting to awaken him and it is the perhaps unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles to so much of what i cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling for the purpose of relieving mr valdemar from the mesmeric trance i made use of the customary passes these for a time were unsuccessful the first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris it was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor it was now suggested that i should attempt to influence the patient's arm as heretofore i made the attempt and failed dr f then intimated a desire to have me put a question i did so as follows mr valdemar can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now there was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks the tongue quivered or rather rolled violently in the mouth although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before and at length the same hideous voice which i have already described broke forth for god's sake quick quick i mean you sleep or quick waken me quick i say to you that i am dead i was thoroughly unnerved and for an instant remained undecided what to do at first i made an endeavor to recompose the patient but failing in this through total abeyance of the will i retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him in this attempt i soon saw that i should be successful or at least i soon fancied that my success would be complete and i am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken for what really occurred however it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared as i rapidly made the mesmeric passes amid ejaculations of dead dead absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer his whole frame at once within the space of a single minute or even less shrunk crumbled absolutely rotted away beneath my hands upon the bed before that whole company there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome of detestable putridity end of the facts in the case of m valdemar chapter 3 of 12 creepy tales by edgar allan poe the black cat for the most wild yet most homely narrative which i am about to pen i neither expect nor solicit belief mad indeed would i be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence yet mad am i not and very surely do i not dream but to-morrow i die and to-day i would unburthen my soul my immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly succinctly and without comment a series of mere household events and their consequences these events have terrified have tortured have destroyed me yet i will not attempt to expound them to me they have presented little but horror to many they will seem less terrible than baroques hereafter perhaps some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace 
some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early, and was able to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black, and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill-temper. One night returning home, much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When in his fright at my violence he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth, the fury of the demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more fiendish malevolence gin-nurtured thrilled every fibre of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of the eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty, but it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling and the soul remained untouched. 
I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of the creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such the spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped the noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity. But I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house, and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme, but at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep, 
the falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster the lime of which with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass had then accomplished the portraiture as i saw it although i thus readily accounted to my reason if not altogether to my conscience for the startling fact just detailed it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy for months i could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed but was not remorse i went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me among the vile haunts which i now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place one night as i sat half stupefied in a den of more than infamy my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment i had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes and what now caused me surprise was the fact that i had not sooner perceived the object thereupon i approached it and touched it with my hand it was a black cat a very large one fully as large as pluto and closely resembling him in every respect but one pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body but this cat had a large although indefinite splotch of white covering nearly the whole region of the breast upon my touching him he immediately arose purred loudly rubbed against my hand and appeared delighted with my notice this then was the very creature of which i was in search i at once offered to purchase it from the landlord but this person made no claim to it knew nothing of it had never seen it before i continued my caresses and when i prepared to go home the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me i permitted it to do so occasionally stooping and patting it as i proceeded when it reached the house it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife for my own part i soon found a dislike to it arising within me this was just the reverse of what i had anticipated but i know not how or why it was its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed by slow degrees these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred i avoided the creature a certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it i did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill-use it but gradually very gradually i came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence what added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after i brought it home that like pluto it also had been deprived of one of its eyes this circumstance however only endeared it to my wife who as i have already said possessed in a high degree the humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures with my aversion to this cat however its partiality for myself seemed to increase it followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend whenever i sat it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees covering me with its loathsome caresses if i arose to walk it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress clamor in this manner to my breast at such times although i longed to destroy it with a blow i was yet withheld from doing so partly by a memory of my former crime but chiefly let me confess it at once 
by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon cell, I am almost ashamed to own, that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, in which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name, and for this above all I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. Oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death! And now was I indeed wretched upon the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me a man, fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face in its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of an old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness, uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand. I aimed a blow at the animal which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again I deliberated about casting it in the well of the yard, about packing it in a box, as if merchandise, with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. 
its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening moreover in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the red of the cellar i made no doubt that i could readily displace the bricks at this point insert the corpse and wall the hole up as before so that no eye could detect anything suspicious and in this calculation i was not deceived by means of a crowbar i easily dislodged the bricks and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall i propped it in that position while with little trouble i relayed the whole structure as it originally stood having procured mortar sand and hair with every possible precaution i prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old and with this i very carefully went over the new brickwork when i had finished i felt satisfied that all was right the wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed my rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care i looked around triumphantly and said to myself here at least then my labor has not been in vain my next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness for i had at length firmly resolved to put it to death had i been able to meet with it at the moment there could be no doubt of its fate but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood it is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom it did not make its appearance during the night and thus for one night at least since the introduction into the house i soundly and tranquilly slept i slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul the second and the third day passed and still my tormentor came not once again i breathed as a free man the monster in terror had fled the premises for ever i should behold it no more my happiness was supreme the guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little some few inquiries had been made but these had been readily answered even a search had been instituted but of course nothing was to be discovered i looked upon my future felicity as secured upon the fourth day of the assassination a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises secure however in the inscrutability of my place of concealment i felt no embarrassment whatever the officers bade me accompany them in their search they left no nook or corner unexplored at length for the third or fourth time they descended into the cellar i quivered not in a muscle my heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence i walked the cellar from end to end i folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro the police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart the glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained i burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness gentlemen i said at last as the party ascended the steps i delight to have allayed your suspicions i wish you all health and a little more courtesy by the by gentlemen this this is a very well-constructed house and the rabbit desire to say something easily i scarcely knew what i uttered at all i may say an excellently well-constructed house these walls are you going gentlemen these walls are solidly put together and here through the mere frenzy of bravado i rapped heavily with a cane which i held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom but may god shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend 
No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell conjointly with the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily, the corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. End of the Black Cat Section 4 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Fall of the House of Usher Sans Coeur Est une lutte suspendue. Sitôt, quand les touchés, il résonnait. De Berengar. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day, in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone, on horseback, through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but, with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic, sentiment, with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house, and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant, eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveller upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought, which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of Usher? It was a mystery all insoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that, while beyond doubt, there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us, still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify, or perhaps to annihilate, its capacity for sorrowful impression, and, acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous bank of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling, and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the grey sedge, and the ghastly tree-stems, and the vacant and eye-like windows. 
Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom I now proposed to myself a sojourn of some weeks. Its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood. But many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, had lately reached me in a distant part of the country, a letter from him which, in its wildly importunate nature, had admitted of no other than a personal reply. The MS gave evidence of nervous agitation. The writer spoke of acute bodily illness, of a mental disorder which oppressed him, and of an earnest desire to see me, as his best, and indeed his only, personal friend, with a view of attempting, by the cheerfulness of my society, some alleviation of his malady. It was the manner in which all this, and much more, was said. It was the apparent heart that went with his request, which allowed me no room for hesitation, and I accordingly obeyed forthwith what I still considered a very singular summons. Although, as boys, we had been even intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. His reserve had been always excessive and habitual. I was aware, however, that his very ancient family had been noted, time out of mind, for a peculiar sensibility of temperament, displaying itself, through long ages, in many works of exalted art, and manifested, of late, in repeated deeds of munificent yet unobtrusive charity, as well as in a passionate devotion to the intricacies, perhaps even more than to the orthodox and easily recognizable beauties of musical science. I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the Usher race, all time-honored as it was, had put forth, at no period, any enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descent, and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variation, so lain. It was this deficiency, I considered, while running over in thought the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people, and while speculating upon the possible influence which the one, in the long lapse of centuries, might have exercised upon the other. It was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue, and a consequent undeviating transmission, from sire to son, of the patrimony with the name, which had, at length, so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include, in the minds of the peasantry who used it, both the family and the family mansion. I have said that the sole effect of my somewhat childish experiment, that of looking within the tarn, had been to deepen the first singular impression. There can be no doubt that the consciousness of the rapid increase of my superstition, for why should I not so term it, served mainly to accelerate the increase itself. Such, I have long known, is the paradoxical law of all sentiments having terror as a basis. And it might have been for this reason only that, when I again uplifted my eyes to the house itself, from its image in the pool, there grew in my mind a strange fancy, a fancy so ridiculous, indeed, that I but mention it to show the vivid force of the sensations which oppressed me. I had so worked upon my imagination as to really believe that about the whole mansion and domain there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves in their immediate vincity, an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the grey wall and the silent tarn, a pestilent and mystic vapour, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. Shaking off from my spirit what must have been a dream, I scanned more narrowly the real aspect of the building. Its principal feature seemed to be that of an excessive antiquity. The discoloration of ages had been great. 
Minute fungi overspread the whole exterior, hanging in a fine tangled webwork from the eaves. Yet all this was apart from any extraordinary dilapidation. No portion of the masonry had fallen, and there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. In this there was much that reminded me of the specious totality of old woodwork which had rotted for long years in some neglected vault, with no disturbance from the breath of the external air. Beyond this indication of extensive decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability. Perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which, extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction, until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. Noticing these things, I rode over a short causeway to the house. A servant in waiting took my horse, and I entered the Gothic archway of the hall. A valet, of stealthy step, thence conducted me, in silence, through many dark and intricate passages in my progress to the studio of his master. Much that I encountered on the way contributed, I know not how, to heighten the vague sentiment of which I have already spoken. While the objects around me, while the carvings of the ceiling, the sombre tapestries of the walls, the ebon blackness of the floors, and the phantasmagoric armorial trophies which rattled as I strode, were but matters to which, or to such as which, I had been accustomed from my infancy, while I hesitated not to acknowledge how familiar was all this, I still wondered to find how unfamiliar were the fancies which ordinary images were stirring up. On one of the staircases I met the physician of the family. His countenance, I thought, wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. He accosted me with trepidation, and passed on. The valet now threw open a door, and ushered me into the presence of his master. The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed, and at so vast a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of encrimsoned light made their way through the trellised panes, and served to render sufficiently distinct the more prominent objects around. The eye, however, struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the chamber, or the recesses of the vaulted and fretted ceiling. Dark tapestries hung upon the walls. The general furniture was profuse, comfortless, antique, and tattered. Many books and musical instruments they scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that I breathed an atmosphere of sorrow. An air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher arose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length, and greeted me with a vivacious warmth which had much in it, I had first thought, of an overdose of cordiality, of the constrained effort of the ennuyé man of the world. A glance, however, upon his countenance, convinced me of his perfect sincerity. We sat down, and for some moments, while he spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe. Surely man had never before so terribly altered, in so brief a period, as had Roderick Usher. "'Twas with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the wan being before me with the companion of my early boyhood. Yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable. A cadaverousness of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surpassingly beautiful curve, a nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations, a finely moulded chin, speaking, in its want of prominence, of a want of moral energy, 
hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. These features, with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easily to be forgotten. And now, in the mere exaggeration of the prevailing character of these features, and of the expression they were wont to convey, lay so much of change that I doubted to whom I spoke. The now ghastly pallor of the skin, and the now miraculous luster of the eye, above all things startled and even awed me. The silken hair, too, had been suffered to grow all unheeded, and as, in its wild gossamer texture, it floated rather than fell about the face, I could not, even with effort, connect its arabesque expression with any idea of simple humanity. In the manner of my friend, I was at once struck with an incoherence, an inconsistency, and I soon found this to arise from a series of feeble and futile struggles to overcome a habitual trepidancy, an excessive nervous agitation. For something of this nature I had indeed been prepared, no less by his letter than by reminiscences of certain boyish traits, and by conclusions deduced from his peculiar physical conformation and temperament. His action was alternately vivacious and sullen. His voice varied rapidly from a tremulous indecision, when the animal spirit seemed utterly in abeyance to that species of energetic concision, that abrupt, weighty, unhurried, and hollow-sounding enunciation, that leaden, self-balanced, and perfectly modulated guttural utterance, which may be observed in the lost drunkard, or the irreclaimable eater of opium, during the periods of his most intense excitement. It was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit, of his earnest desire to see me, and of the solace he expected me to afford him. He entered, at some length, into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and family evil, and one for which he despaired to find a remedy. A mere nervous affectation, he immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unnatural sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me, although, perhaps, the terms and the general manner of their narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The more insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light. And there were but peculiar sounds, and these from stringed instruments, that did not inspire him with horror. To an animalist species of terror I found him a bounden slave. I shall perish, he said. I must perish in this deplorable folly. Thus, thus, and not otherwise, shall I be lost. I dread the events of the future, not in themselves, but in their results. I shudder at the thought of any, even the most trivial incident, which may operate upon this intolerable agitation of soul. I have, indeed, no abhorrence of danger, except in its absolute effect of terror. In this unnerved, in this pitiable condition, I fear that the period will sooner or later arrive, when I must abandon life and reason altogether, in some struggle with the grim phantasm, fear. I learned, moreover, at intervals, and through broken and equivocal hints, of another singular feature of his mental condition. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions in regard to the dwelling which he tenanted, and whence, for many years, he had never ventured forth in regard to an influence whose superstitious force was conveyed in terms too shadowy here to be restated, an influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had, by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit, an effect which the physique of the grey walls and turrets, and of the dim tarn into which they all looked down, had, at length, 
brought about upon the morale of his existence. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus afflicted him could be traced to a more natural and far more palpable origin, to the severe and long-continued illness, indeed, to the evidently approaching dissolution, of a tenderly beloved sister, his sole companion for long years, his last and only relative on earth. Her decease, he said, with a bitterness which I can never forget, would leave him, him the hopeless and the frail, the last of the ancient race of the ushers. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, for so she was called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment, and, without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment, not unmingled with dread. And yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me, as my eyes followed her retreating steps. When a door, at length, closed upon her, my glance sought instinctively and eagerly the countenance of the brother, but he had buried his face in his hands, and I could only perceive that a far more than ordinary wanness had overspread the emaciated fingers through which trickled many passionate tears. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person, and frequent, although transient, affectations of a partially cataleptical character were the unusual diagnosis. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady, and had not betaken herself finally to bed, but, on the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed, as her brother told me at night, with inexpressible agitation, to the prostrating powers of the destroyer, and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should obtain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned either by Usher or myself, and during this period I was busied in earnest endeavours to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened, as if in a dream, to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar. And thus, as a closer and still closer intimacy emitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I had thus spent alone with the master of the house of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies, or of the occupations in which he involved me, or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulphurous luster over all. His long improvised dirges will ring forever in my ears. Among other things, I hold painfully in mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of Von Weber from the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded, and which grew, touch by touch, into vagueness at which I shuddered the more thrillingly, because I shuddered knowing not why. From these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me, I would in vain endeavour to reduce more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me, at least, in the circumstances then surrounding me, there arose out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas an intensity of intolerable awe, no shadow of which felt I ever, 
yet in the contemplation of the certainly glowing, yet too concrete reveries of Fuseli. One of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend, partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly, in words. The small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault, or tunnel, with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent, and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible, yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout, and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve, which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer, with the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments. It was, perhaps, the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar, which gave birth, in great measure, to the fantastic character of his performances. But the fervid facility of his impromptus could not be so accounted for. They must have been, and were, in the notes, as well as in the words of his wild fantasies, for he not unfrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations the result of that intense mental collectedness and concentration to which i have previously alluded as observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement the words of one of these rhapsodies i have easily remembered i was perhaps the more forcibly impressed with it as he gave it because in the under or mystic current of its meaning i fancied that i perceived and for the first time a full consciousness on the very part of Usher, of the tottering of his lofty reason upon her throne. The verses, which were entitled The Haunted Palace, ran very nearly, if not accurately, thus. 1. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stealthy palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's dominion it stood there. Never seraph spread a pinion over fabric half so fair. Two. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time, long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. 3. Wanderers in that happy valley, through two luminous windows, saw spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne where sitting, Porphyrogene, in state his glory well befitting, the ruler of the realm was seen. 4. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore, a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. 5. But evil things, in robes of sorrow, assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him, desolate. And round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. 6. And travellers now within that valley, through the red-litten windows, see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody. While, like a rapid, ghastly river, through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever, and laugh, but smile no more. 
I well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us into a train of thought, wherein there became manifest an opinion of Usher's, which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pertinacity with which he maintained it. This opinion, in its general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. But, in his disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character, and trespassed, under certain conditions, upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with the grey stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in the order of their arrangement, as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them, and of the decayed trees which stood around, above all, in a long and disturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn. Its evidence, the evidence of the sentience, was to be seen, he said, and here I started as he spoke, in the gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent yet importunate and terrible influence which for centuries had moulded the destinies of his family, and which made him what I saw him now, what he was. Such opinions need no comment, and I will make none. Our books, the books which, for years, had formed no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were, as might be supposed, in strict keeping with this character of phantasm. We poured together over such works as the Vervey et Chartreuse of Gresset, the Belfigore of Machiavelli, the Heaven and Hell of Swedenborg, the Subterranean Voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, the Chiromancy of Robert Flood, of Jean de Dagenet, and of de la Chambre, the Journey into the Blue Distance of Tieck, and the City of the Sun by Campanella. One favorite volume was a small Octavio edition of the Directorium Inquisitorium by the Dominican Heinrich de Garon, and there were passages in Pomponius Mela about the old African satyrs and oegopans, over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the perusal of an exceedingly rare and curious book in quarto Gothic, the manual of a forgotten church, the Vigile Mortuorum Secundum Corum Ecclesiae Magantinae. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work, and of its probable influence on the hypochondriac, when, one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline was no more, he stated his intention of preserving her corpse, for a fortnight, previously to its final interment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned to this singular proceeding, was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolution, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased, of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical men, and of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I had met upon the staircase on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded as at best but a harmless, and by no means an unnatural, precaution. At the request of Usher, 
I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it, and which had been so long unopened that our torches, half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light, lying at great depth immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment. It had been used, apparently, in remote feudal times for the worst purposes of a donjon keep, and in later days, as a place of deposit for powder, or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor, and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it, were carefully sheathed with copper. The door, of massive iron, had been, also, similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hinges. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin, and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and Usher, divining, perhaps, my thoughts, murmured out some few words, from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed. The disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left, as usual in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death. We replaced and screwed down the lid, and having secured the door of iron, made our way, with toil, into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house. And now, some days of bitter grief having elapsed, an observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend. His ordinary manner had vanished. His ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten. He roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried, unequal, and objectless step. The pallor of his countenance had assumed, if possible, a more ghastly hue, but the luminousness in his eye had utterly gone out. The once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more, and a tremulous quaver, as if of extreme terror, habitually characterized his utterance. There were times, indeed, when I thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret, to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage. At times, again, I was obliged to resolve all into the mere inexplicable vagaries of madness, for I beheld him gazing upon vacancy for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention, as if listening to some imaginary sound. It was no wonder that his condition terrified, that it infected me. I felt creeping upon me, by slow yet certain degrees, the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. It was, especially, upon retiring to bed, late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of Lady Madeline within the donjon, that I experienced the full power of such feelings. Sleep came not near my couch, while the hours waned and waned away. I struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me. I endeavored to believe that much, if not all, of what I felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room 
of the dark walls and tattered tapestries, which, tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest, swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls, and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed. But my efforts were fruitless. An irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame, and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly causeless alarm. Shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle, I uplifted myself upon the pillows, and, peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber, hearkened, I know not why, except that an instinctive spirit prompted me, to certain low and indefinite sounds which came, through the pauses of the storm, at long intervals, I knew not whence. Overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror, uncountable, yet unendurable, I threw on my clothes with haste for I felt that I should sleep no more during the night, and endeavoured to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which I had fallen by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment. I had taken but a few turns in this manner when a light step on an adjoining staircase arrested my attention. I presently recognised it as that of Usher. In an instant afterward he rapped, with a gentle touch, at my door, and entered, bearing a lamp. His countenance was, as usual, cadaverously wan, but, moreover, there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes, and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanour. His air appalled me, but anything was preferable to the solitude which I had so long endured, and I even welcomed his presence as a relief. "'And have you not seen it?' he said abruptly, after having stared about him for some moments in silence. "'Have you not then seen it? But stay, you shall!' Thus speaking, and having carefully shaded his lamp, he hurried to one of the casements, and threw it freely open to the storm. The impetuous fury of the entering gust nearly lifted us from our feet. It was, indeed, a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty. A whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vincity, for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind and the exceeding density of the clouds, which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house, did not prevent our perceiving the lifelike velocity with which they flew careering from all points against each other, without passing away into the distance. I say that even their exceeding density did not prevent our perceiving this, yet we had no glimpse of the moon or stars, nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning. But under the surfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapour, as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us, were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion. "'You must not, you shall not behold this,' said I, shudderingly to Usher, as I led him, with a gentle violence, from the window to a seat. "'These appearances, which bewilder you, are merely electrical phenomena, not uncommon.' or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank miasma of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favorite romances. I will read, and you shall listen, and so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was the Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Canning, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's more in sad jest than in earnest, for in truth, there was little in its uncouth and unimaginative prolixity which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual ideality of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand, and I indulged a vague hope 
that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief for the history of mental disorder is full of similar anomalies even in the extremeness of the folly which i should read could i have judged indeed by the wild overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened or apparently hearkened to the words of the tale i might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design i had arrived at that well-known portion of the story when ethelred the hero of the tryst having sought in vain for peaceable admission into the dwelling of the hermit proceeds to make good an entrance by force here it will be remembered the words of the narrative run thus and ethelred who was by nature of a doughty heart and who was now mighty withal on account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit who in sooth was of an obstinate and maliceful turn but feeling the rain upon his shoulders and fearing the rising of the tempest uplifted his mace outright and with blows made quickly room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand and now pulling therewith sturdily he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest at the termination of this sentence i started and for a moment paused for it appeared to me although i at once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me it appeared to me that from some very remote portion of the mansion there came indistinctly to my ears what might have been in its exact similarity of character the echo but a stifled and dull one certainly of the very cracking and ripping sound which sir lancelot so particularly described it was beyond doubt the mere coincidence alone which had arrested my attention for amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements and the ordinary commingled noises of the still increasing storm the sound in itself had nothing surely which should have interested or disturbed me i continued the story but the good champion ethelred now entering within the door was sore enraged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit but instead thereof a dragon of a scaly and prodigious demeanour and of a fiery tongue which sate in guard before a palace of gold with a floor of silver and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass with this legend in written who entereth herein a conqueror hath been who slayeth the dragon the shield he shall win and ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon which fell before him and gave up his pesty breath with a shriek so horrid and harsh and withal so piercing that ethelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it the like whereof was never heard before here again i paused abruptly and now with a feeling of wild amazement for there could be no doubt whatever that in this instance i did actually hear although from what direction it proceeded i found it impossible to say a low and apparently distant but harsh protracted and a most unusual screaming or grating sound the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural shriek as described by the romancer oppressed as i certainly was upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence by a thousand conflicting sensations in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant i still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting by any observation the sensitive nervousness of my companion i was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question although assuredly a strange alteration had during the last few minutes taken place in his demeanour 
from a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair, so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep from the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it in profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea, for he rocked from side to side with a gentle yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken notice of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now, the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield, and of the breaking up of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him, and approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle, to where the shield was hung upon the wall, which, in sooth, tarried not for his full coming, but fell down at his feet upon the silver floor, with a mighty, great, and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips, then, as if a shield of brass had, indeed, at that moment, fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous, yet apparently muffled reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leapt to my feet, but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But, as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person, a sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur, as if unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it? Yes, I hear it, and have heard it. Long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it, yet I dared not. Oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am! I dared not, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb! Said I not that my senses were acute? I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago, yet I dared not, I dared not speak. And now, tonight, Hethorad, ha, ha, the breaking of the hermit's door, and the death cry of the dragon, and the clangor of the shield, say, rather, the rending of her coffin, and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison, and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman! Here he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllables, as if in the effort he were giving up his soul. Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door! As if in the superhuman energy of his utterance there had been found the potency of a spell, the huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back upon the instant their ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then, without those doors, there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the Lady Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes, and the evidence of some bitter struggle upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low, moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and in her violent and now final death agonies bore him to the floor a corpse 
and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber, and from that mansion, I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath, as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full, setting, and blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure, of which I have spoken as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound, like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. End of The Fall of the House of Usher Chapter 5 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Mask of the Red Death The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores, with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest-ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow-men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime it was folly to grieve, or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the red death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite, 
In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened that at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro, or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered, that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment, also, that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang and when the minute-hand made the circuit of the face, and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. 
but when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then for a moment all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock, and then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, 
and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-herited Herod, and had gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion, even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave, the mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse, that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revellers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, with which a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste but in the next his brow reddened with rage. "'Who dares?' he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. "'Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements.' It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, 
who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centres of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had disguised him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revellers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revellers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. End of The Mask of the Red Death Chapter 6 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Cask of Amontillado The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be revenged. This was a point definitively settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity." A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. 
I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected, and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of old wines he was sincere. In this respect I did not differ from him materially. I was skilful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him, that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, "'My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking to-day! But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts.' "'How?' said he. "'Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible! And in the middle of the carnival?' "'I have my doubts,' I replied, "'and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain.' "'Amontillado?' "'I have my doubts.' "'Amontillado?' "'And I must satisfy them.' Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If any one has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchese, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is nothing. Amontillado! You have been imposed upon— and as for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, putting on a mask of black silk, and drawing a roclaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honour of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance one and all as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresor. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. 
"'The pipe,' he said. "'It is farther on,' said I. "'But observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls.' He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Niter? he asked at length. Niter, I replied. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> my poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as I once was. You are a man to be missed. For me it is no matter. We will go back, you will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchese. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied. And indeed I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution. A draught of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. "'Drink,' I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while his bells jingled. "'I drink,' he said, "'to the buried that repose around us.' "'And I, to your long life.' He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot-door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nimo me impune lacessit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, with casks and puncheons intermingling, into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. "'The nitre,' I said, "'see, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough. It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draught of the medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement. A grotesque one. "'You do not comprehend,' he said. "'Not I,' I replied. "'Then you are not of the Brotherhood.' "'How?' "'You are not of the Masons.' "'Yes, yes,' I said. "'Yes, yes.' "'You? Impossible! A Mason?' "'A Mason,' I replied. "'A sign,' he said. "'It is this,' I answered producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roclaire. "'You jest!' he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. "'But let us proceed to the Amontillado.' "'Be it so,' I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak. 
and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth the bones had been thrown down, and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use in itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavoured to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. "'Proceed,' I said, "'herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchese—' "'He is an ignoramus,' interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet, horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was much too astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. "'Pass your hand,' I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more let me implore you to return. No. Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado? ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have spoken before. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building-stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of my masonry, when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labours and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel, and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason-work, 
threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess. But the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs, and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamoured. I re-echoed, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamourer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor! Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. I called again, Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick, on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labour. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. End of the Cask of Amontillado Chapter 7 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Premature Burial There are certain themes of which the interest is all-absorbing, but which are too entirely horrible for the purposes of legitimate fiction. These the mere romanticist must eschew if he do not wish to offend or to disgust. They are, with propriety, handled only when the severity and majesty of truth sanctify and sustain them. We thrill, for example, with the most intense of pleasurable pain over the accounts of the passage of the Beresina, of the earthquake at Lisbon, of the plague at London, of the massacre of St. Bartholomew, 
or of the stifling of the hundred and twenty-three prisoners in the black hole at Calcutta. But in these accounts it is the fact, it is the reality, it is the history which excites, as inventions we should regard them with simple abhorrence. I have mentioned some few of the more prominent and august calamities on record, but in these it is the extent, not less than the character, of the calamity which so vividly impresses the fancy. I need not remind the reader that, from the long and weird catalogue of human miseries, I might have selected many individual instances more replete with essential suffering than any of these vast generalities of disaster. The true wretchedness, indeed the ultimate woe, is particular, not diffuse. That the ghastly extremes of agony are endured by man, the unit, and never by man the mass. For this let us thank a merciful God. To be buried while alive is beyond question the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. That it has frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? We know that there are diseases in which occur total cessations of all the apparent functions of vitality, and yet in which these cessations are merely suspensions, properly so called. They are only temporary pauses in the incomprehensible mechanism. A certain period elapses and some unseen mysterious principle again sets in motion the magic pinions and the wizard wheels. The silver cord was not for ever loosed, nor the golden bowl irreparably broken. But where, meantime, was the soul? Apart, however, from the inevitable conclusion a priori that such causes must produce such effects, that the well-known occurrence of such cases of suspended animation must naturally give rise now and then to premature interments. Apart from this consideration, we have the direct testimony of medical and ordinary experience to prove that a vast number of such interments have actually taken place. I might refer at once, if necessary, to a hundred well-authenticated instances one of very remarkable character and of which the circumstances may be fresh in the memory of some of my readers occurred not very long ago in the neighbouring city of baltimore where it occasioned a painful intense and widely extended excitement the wife of one of the most respectable citizens a lawyer of eminence and a member of congress was seized with a sudden and unaccountable illness which completely baffled the skill of her physicians. After much suffering she died, or was supposed to die. No one suspected, indeed, or had reason to suspect, that she was not actually dead. She presented all the ordinary appearances of death. The face assumed the usual pinched and sunken outline. The lips were of the usual marble pallor. The eyes were lustreless, 
there was no warmth. Pulsation had ceased. For three days the body was preserved unburied, during which it had acquired a stony rigidity. The funeral, in short, was hastened on account of the rapid advance of what was supposed to be decomposition. The lady was deposited in her family vault, which for three subsequent years was undisturbed. At the expiration of this term it was opened for the reception of a sarcophagus. But alas, how fearful a shock awaited the husband, who personally threw open the door. As its portals swung outwardly back, some white apparelled object fell rattling within his arms. It was the skeleton of his wife in her yet unmoulded shroud. A careful investigation rendered it evident that she had revived within two days after her entombment, that her struggles within the coffin had caused it to fall from a ledge or shelf to the floor, where it was so broken as to permit her escape. A lamp which had been accidentally left full of oil within the tomb was found empty. It might have been exhausted, however, by evaporation. On the uttermost of the steps which led down into the dread chamber was a large fragment of the coffin, with which it seemed that she had endeavoured to arrest attention by striking the iron door. While thus occupied she probably swooned, or possibly died, through sheer terror, and, in failing, her shroud became entangled in some ironwork which projected interiorly. Thus she remained, and thus she rotted erect. In the year 1810, a case of living inhumation happened in France, attended with circumstances which go far to warrant the assertion that truth is indeed stranger than fiction. The heroine of the story was a Mademoiselle Victorine Lafourcade, a young girl of illustrious family, of wealth, and of great personal beauty. Among her numerous suitors was Julien Bossuet, a poor litterateur or journalist of Paris. His talents and general amiability had recommended him to the notice of the heiress, by whom he seems to have been truly beloved. But her pride of birth decided her finally to reject him, and to wed a Monsieur Renel, a banker and a diplomatist of some eminence. After marriage, however, this gentleman neglected and perhaps even more positively ill-treated her. Having passed with him some wretched years, she died. At least, her condition so closely resembled death as to deceive everyone who saw her. She was buried, not in a vault, but in an ordinary grave in the village of her nativity. Filled with despair and still inflamed by the memory of a profound attachment, the lover journeys from the capital to the remote province in which the village lies, with the romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse and possessing himself of its luxuriant tresses. He reaches the grave. At midnight he unearths the coffin, opens it, and is in the act of detaching the hair when he is arrested by the unclosing of the beloved eyes. In fact, the lady had been buried alive. Vitality had not altogether departed, and she was aroused by the caresses of her lover from the lethargy which had been mistaken for death. 
He bore her frantically to his lodgings in the village. He employed certain powerful restoratives, suggested by no little medical learning. In fine, she revived. She recognized her preserver. She remained with him until, by slow degrees, she fully recovered her original health. Her woman's heart was not adamant, and this last lesson of love sufficed to soften it. She bestowed it upon Bossuet. She returned no more to her husband, but, concealing from him her resurrection, fled with her lover to America. Twenty years afterward, the two returned to France in the persuasion that time had so greatly altered the lady's appearance that her friends would be unable to recognize her. They were mistaken, however, for at the first meeting Monsieur Renel did actually recognize and make claim to his wife. This claim she resisted, and a judicial tribunal sustained her in her resistance, deciding that the peculiar circumstances, with the long lapse of years, had extinguished not only equitably, but legally, the authority of the husband. The Chirurgical Journal of Leipzig, a periodical of high authority and merit, which some American bookseller would do well to translate and republish, records in a late number a very distressing event of the character in question. An officer of artillery, a man of gigantic stature and of robust health, being thrown from an unmanageable horse, received a very severe contusion upon the head, which rendered him insensible at once. The skull was slightly fractured, but no immediate danger was apprehended. Trepanning was accomplished successfully. He was bled, and many other of the ordinary means of relief were adopted. Gradually, however, he fell into a more and more hopeless state of stupor, and finally it was thought that he died. The weather was warm, and he was buried with indecent haste in one of the public cemeteries. His funeral took place on Thursday. On the Sunday following, the grounds of the cemetery were, as usual, much thronged with visitors, and about noon an intense excitement was created by the declaration of a peasant that while sitting upon the grave of the officer he had distinctly felt a commotion of the earth, as if occasioned by one struggling beneath. At first little attention was paid to the man's asseveration, but his evident terror, and the dogged obstinacy with which he persisted in his story, had at length their natural effect upon the crowd. Spades were hurriedly procured, and the grave, which was shamefully shallow, was in a few minutes so far thrown open that the head of its occupant appeared. He was then seemingly dead, but he sat nearly erect within his coffin, the lid of which in his furious struggles he had partially uplifted. He was forthwith conveyed to the nearest hospital, and there pronounced to be still living, although in an asphytic condition. After some hours he revived, recognized individuals of his acquaintance, and in broken sentences spoke of his agonies in the grave. From what he related, it was clear that he must have been conscious of life for more than an hour, while inhumed, before lapsing into insensibility. The grave was carelessly and loosely filled with an exceedingly porous soil, and thus some air was necessarily admitted. He heard the footsteps of the crowd overhead, and endeavoured to make himself heard in turn. It was the tumult within the grounds of the cemetery, he said, 
which appeared to awaken him from a deep sleep. But no sooner was he awake than he became fully aware of the awful horrors of his position. This patient, it is recorded, was doing well and seemed to be in a fair way of ultimate recovery, but fell a victim to the quackeries of medical experiment. The galvanic battery was applied, and he suddenly expired in one of those ecstatic paroxysms which, occasionally, it superinduces. The mention of the galvanic battery, nevertheless, recalls to my memory a well-known and very extraordinary case in point, where its action proved the means of restoring to animation a young attorney of London, who had been interred for two days. This occurred in 1831, and created at the time a very profound sensation wherever it was made the subject of converse. The patient, Mr. Edward Stapleton, had died, apparently of typhus fever, accompanied with some anomalous symptoms which had excited the curiosity of his medical attendants. Upon his seeming decease, his friends were requested to sanction a post-mortem examination, but declined to permit it. As often happens when such refusals are made, the practitioners resolved to disinter the body and dissect it at leisure, in private. Arrangements were easily effected with some of the numerous corps of body-snatchers with which London abounds, and upon the third night after the funeral the supposed corpse was unearthed from a grave eight feet deep and deposited in the opening chamber of one of the private hospitals. An incision of some extent had actually been made in the abdomen when the fresh and undecayed appearance of the subject suggested an application of the battery. One experiment succeeded another, and the customary effects supervened, with nothing to characterize them in any respect except, upon one or two occasions, a more than ordinary degree of lifelikeness in the convulsive action. It grew late. The day was about to dawn, and it was thought expedient at length to proceed at once to the dissection. A student, however, was especially desirous of testing a theory of his own, and insisted upon applying the battery to one of the pectoral muscles. A rough gash was made, and a wire hastily brought in contact, when the patient, with a hurried but quite unconvulsive movement, arose from the table, stepped into the middle of the floor, gazed about him uneasily for a few seconds, and then spoke. What he said was unintelligible, but words were uttered. The syllabification was distinct. Having spoken, he fell heavily to the floor. For some moments all were paralyzed with awe, but the urgency of the case soon restored them their presence of mind. It was seen that Mr. Stapleton was alive, although in a swoon. Upon exhibition of ether, he revived, and was rapidly restored to health, and to the society of his friends, from whom, however, all knowledge of his resuscitation was withheld, until a relapse was no longer to be apprehended. Their wonder, their rapturous astonishment, may be conceived. The most thrilling peculiarity of this incident, nevertheless, is involved in what Mr. S. himself asserts. He declares that at no period was he altogether insensible, that, dully and confusedly, he was aware of everything which happened to him, from the moment in which he was pronounced dead by his physicians, to that in which he fell swooning to the floor of the hospital. "'I am alive!' 
were the uncomprehended words which, upon recognizing the locality of the dissecting-room, he had endeavoured, in his extremity, to utter. It were an easy matter to multiply such histories as these, but I forbear, for indeed we have no need of such to establish the fact that premature interments occur. When we reflect how very rarely, from the nature of the case, we have it in our power to detect them, we must admit that they may frequently occur without our cognizance. Scarcely, in truth, is a graveyard ever encroached upon for any purpose, to any great extent, that skeletons are not found in postures which suggest the most fearful of suspicions. Fearful, indeed, the suspicion, but more fearful the doom. It may be asserted, without hesitation, that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and of mental distress, as is burial before death, the unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to the death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence, like a sea that overwhelms, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm. These things, with the thoughts of the air and grass above, with memory of dear friends who would fly to save us if but informed of our fate, and with consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed, that our hopeless portion is that of the really dead. These considerations, I say, carry into the heart which still palpitates a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. We know of nothing so agonizing upon earth. We can dream of nothing half so hideous in the realms of the nethermost hell. And thus all narratives upon this topic have an interest profound, an interest nevertheless which, through the sacred awe of the topic itself, very properly and very peculiarly depends upon our conviction of the truth of the matter narrated. What I have now to tell is of my own actual knowledge, of my own positive and personal experience. For several years I had been subject to attacks of the singular disorder which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, in default of a more definitive title. Although both the immediate and the predisposing causes, and even the actual diagnosis of this disease are still mysterious, its obvious and apparent character is sufficiently well understood. Its variations seem to be chiefly of degree. Sometimes the patient lies, for a day only, or even for a shorter period, in a species of exaggerated lethargy. He is senseless and externally motionless but the pulsation of the heart is still faintly perceptible. Some traces of warmth remain, a slight colour lingers within the centre of the cheek, and upon application of a mirror to the lips we can detect a torpid, unequal, and vacillating action of the lungs. Then again the duration of the trance is for weeks, even for months, while the closest scrutiny and the most rigorous medical tests fail to establish any material distinction between the state of the sufferer and what we conceive of absolute death. 
Very usually he is saved from premature interment solely by the knowledge of his friends that he has been previously subject to catalepsy, by the consequent suspicion excited, and above all by the non-appearance of decay. The advances of the malady are, luckily, gradual. The first manifestations, although marked, are unequivocal. The fits grow successively more and more distinctive, and endure each for a longer term than the preceding. In this lies the principal security from inhumation. The unfortunate, whose first attack should be of the extreme character, which is occasionally seen, would almost inevitably be consigned alive to the tomb. My own case differed in no important particular from those mentioned in medical books. Sometimes, without any apparent cause, I sank, little by little, into a condition of hemisyncope, or half-swoon, and in this condition, without pain, without ability to stir, or, strictly speaking, to think, but with a dull, lethargic consciousness of life, and of the presence of those who surrounded my bed, I remained, until the crisis of the disease restored me, suddenly, to perfect sensation. At other times I was quickly and impetuously smitten. I grew sick and numb, and chilly, and dizzy, and so fell prostrate at once. Then, for weeks, all was void and black and silent, and nothing became the universe. Total annihilation could be no more. From these latter attacks I awoke, however, with a gradation slow in proportion to the suddenness of the seizure. Just as the day dawns to the friendless and houseless beggar who roams the streets throughout the long desolate winter night, just so tardily, just so wearily, just so cheerily came back the light of the soul to me. Apart from the tendency to trance, however, my general health appeared to be good, nor could I perceive that it was at all affected by the one prevalent malady, unless, indeed, an idiosyncrasy in my ordinary sleep may be looked upon as superinduced. Upon awaking from slumber I could never gain at once thorough possession of my senses, and always remained for many minutes in much bewilderment and perplexity, the mental faculties in general, but the memory in especial, being in a condition of absolute abeyance. In all that I endured there was no physical suffering, but of moral distress an infinitude. My fancy grew charnel. I talked of worms, of tombs, and epitaphs. I was lost in reveries of death, and the idea of premature burial held continual possession of my brain. The ghastly danger to which I was subjected haunted me day and night. In the former, the torture of meditation was excessive, in the latter, supreme. When the grim darkness overspread the earth, then, with every horror of thought, I shook, shook as the quivering plumes upon the hearse. When nature could endure wakefulness no longer, it was with a struggle that I consented to sleep, for I shuddered to reflect that upon waking I might find myself the tenant of a grave, and when, finally, I sank into slumber, it was only to rush at once into a world of phantasms, above which, with vast, sable, overshadowing wing, 
hovered predominant the one sepulchral idea from the innumerable images of gloom which thus oppressed me in dreams i select for record but a solitary vision methought i was immersed in a cataleptic trance of more than usual duration and profundity suddenly there came an icy hand upon my forehead and an impatient gibbering voice whispered the word arise within my ear i sat erect the darkness was total i could not see the figure of him who had aroused me i could call to mind neither the period at which i had fallen into the trance nor the locality in which i then lay while i remained motionless and busied in endeavours to collect my thought the cold hand grasped me fiercely by the wrist shaking it petulantly while the gibbering voice said again arise did i not bid thee arise and who i demanded art thou i have no name in the regions which i inhabit replied the voice mournfully i was mortal but am fiend i was merciless but am pitiful thou dost feel that i shudder my teeth chatter as i speak yet it is not with the chilliness of the night of the night without end but this hideousness is insufferable how canst thou tranquilly sleep i cannot rest for the cry of these great agonies these sights are more than i can bear get thee up come with me into the outer night and let me unfold to thee the graves is this not a spectacle of woe behold i looked and the unseen figure which still grasped me by the wrist had caused to be thrown open the graves of all mankind and from each issued the faint phosphoric radiance of decay so that i could see into the innermost recesses and there view the shrouded bodies in their sad and sullen slumbers with the worm but alas the real sleepers were fewer by many millions than those who slumbered not at all and there was a feeble struggling and there was a general sad unrest and from out the depths of the countless pits there came a melancholy rustling from the garments of the buried and of those who seemed tranquilly to repose i saw that a vast number had changed in a greater or less degree the rigid and uneasy position in which they had originally been entombed and the voice again said to me as i gazed is it not oh is it not a pitiful sight but before i could find words to reply the figure had ceased to grasp my wrist the phosphoric lights expired and the graves were closed with a sudden violence while from out them arose a tumult of despairing cries saying again is it not oh god is it not a very pitiful sight fantasies such as these presenting themselves at night extended their terrific influence far into my waking hours my nerves became thoroughly unstrung and i fell a prey to perpetual horror i hesitated to ride or to walk or to indulge in any exercise that would carry me from home in fact i no longer dared trust myself out of the immediate presence of those who were aware of my proneness to catalepsy 
lest, falling into one of my usual fits, I should be buried before my real condition could be ascertained. I doubted the care, the fidelity of my dearest friends. I dreaded that in some trance of more than customary duration they might be prevailed upon to regard me as irrecoverable. I even went so far as to fear that, as I occasioned much trouble, they might be glad to consider any very protracted attack as sufficient excuse for getting rid of me altogether. It was in vain they endeavoured to reassure me by the most solemn promises. I exacted the most sacred oaths that under no circumstances they would bury me until decomposition had so materially advanced as to render farther preservation impossible. And even then my mortal terrors would listen to no reason, would accept no consolation. I entered into a series of elaborate precautions. Among other things I had the family vault so remodelled as to admit of being readily opened from within. The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There were arrangements also for the free admission of air and light, and convenient receptacles for food and water, with within immediate reach of the coffin intended for my reception. This coffin was warmly and softly padded, and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of the vault door, with the addition of springs so contrived that the feeblest movement of the body would be sufficient to set it at liberty. Beside all this, there was suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell, the rope of which, it was designed, should extend through a hole in the coffin, and so be fastened to one of the hands of the corpse. But, alas, what avails the vigilance against the destiny of man? Not even these well-contrived securities sufficed to save from the uttermost agonies of living inhumation a wretch to these agonies foredoomed. There arrived an epoch, as often before there had arrived, in which I found myself emerging from total unconsciousness into the first feeble and indefinite sense of existence. Slowly, with a tortoise gradation, approached the faint grey dawn of the cycle day, a torpid uneasiness, an apathetic endurance of dull pain, no care, no hope, no effort. Then, after a long interval, a ringing in the ears. Then, after a lapse still longer, a prickling or tingling sensation in the extremities. Then, a seemingly eternal period of pleasurable quiescence, during which the awakening feelings are struggling into thought. Then, a brief re-sinking into non-entity. Then, a sudden recovery. At length, the slight quivering of an eyelid, and immediately thereon, an electric shock of a terror, deadly and indefinite, which sends the blood in torrents from the temples to the heart. And now the first positive effort to think, and now the first endeavour to remember, and now a partial and evanescent success, and now the memory has so far regained its dominion that in some measure I am cognizant of my state. I feel that I am not awaking from ordinary sleep, I recollect that I have been subject to catalepsy, and now at last, as if by the rush of an ocean, my shuddering spirit is overwhelmed by the one grim danger, by the one spectral and ever-prevalent idea. For some minutes after this fancy possessed me, I remained without motion. And why? 
I could not summon courage to move. I dared not make the effort which was to satisfy me of my fate, and yet there was something at my heart which whispered me it was sure. Despair, such as no other species of wretchedness ever calls into being, despair alone urged me, after long irresolution, to uplift the heavy lids of my eyes. I uplifted them. It was dark, all dark. I knew that the fit was over. I knew that the crisis of my disorder had long passed. I knew that I had now fully recovered the use of my visual faculties, and yet it was dark, all dark. The intense and utter raylessness of the night that endureth for evermore. I endeavoured to shriek, and my lips and my parched tongue moved convulsively together in the attempt, but no voice issued from the cavernous lungs, which, oppressed as if by the weight of some incumbent mountain, gasped and palpitated with the heart at every elaborate and struggling inspiration. The movement of the jaws, in this effort to cry aloud, showed me that they were bound up, as is usual with the dead. I felt, too, that I lay upon some hard substance, and by something similar my sides were also closely compressed. So far I had not ventured to stir any of my limbs, but now I violently threw up my arms, which had been lying at length, with the wrists crossed. They struck a solid wooden substance, which extended above my person at an elevation of not more than six inches from my face. I could no longer doubt that I reposed within a coffin at last. And now, amid all my infinite miseries, came sweetly the cherub hope, for I thought of my precautions. I writhed, and made spasmodic exertions to force open the lid. It would not move. I felt my wrists for the bell-rope. It was not to be found. And now the comforter fled for ever, and a still sterner despair reigned triumphant, for I could not help perceiving the absence of the paddings which I had so carefully prepared, and then, too, there came suddenly to my nostrils the strong, peculiar odour of moist earth. The conclusion was irresistible. I was not within the vault. I had fallen into a trance while absent from home, while among strangers, when or how I could not remember, and it was they who had buried me as a dog, nailed up in some common coffin, and thrust deep, deep and for ever into some ordinary and nameless grave. As this awful conviction forced itself thus into the innermost chambers of my soul, I once again struggled to cry aloud, and in this second endeavour I succeeded. A long, wild, and continuous shriek, or yell of agony, resounded through the realms of the subterranean night. "'Hello, hello there,' said a gruff voice in reply. "'What the devil's the matter now?' said a second. "'Get out of that,' said a third. "'What do you mean by yowling in that ear kind of style, like a catty-mount?' said a fourth. And hereupon I was seized and shaken without ceremony, for several minutes, by a junto of very rough-looking individuals. They did not arouse me from my slumber, for I was wide awake when I screamed, but they restored me to the full possession of my memory. This adventure occurred near Richmond in Virginia, Accompanied by a friend, I had proceeded upon a gunning expedition, some miles down by the banks of the James River. Night approached, and we were overtaken by a storm. 
the cabin of a small sloop lying at anchor in the stream and laden with garden mould afforded us the only available shelter we made the best of it and passed the night on board i slept in one of the only two berths in the vessel and the berths of a sloop of sixty or twenty tons need scarcely be described that which i occupied had no bedding of any kind its extreme width was eighteen inches the distance of its bottom from the deck overhead was precisely the same i found it a matter of exceeding difficulty to squeeze myself in nevertheless i slept soundly and the whole of my vision for it was no dream and no nightmare arose naturally from the circumstances of my position from my ordinary bias of thought and from the difficulty to which i have alluded of collecting my senses and especially of regaining my memory for a long time after awaking from slumber the men who shook me were the crew of the sloop and some labourers engaged to unload it from the load itself came the earthy smell the bandage about the jaws was a silk handkerchief in which i had bound up my head in default of my customary nightcap the tortures endured however were indubitably quite equal for the time to those of actual sepulture they were fearfully they were inconceivably hideous but out of evil proceeded good for their very excess wrought in my spirit an inevitable revulsion my soul acquired tone acquired temper i went abroad i took vigorous exercise i breathed the free air of heaven i thought upon other subjects than death i discarded my medical books buchan i burned i read no night thoughts no fustian about churchyards no bugaboo tales such as this in short i became a new man and lived a man's life from that memorable night i dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions and with them vanished the cataleptic disorder of which perhaps they had been less the consequence than the cause there are moments when even to the sober eye of reason the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of a hell but the imagination of man is no carathis to explore with impunity its every cavern alas the grim legion of sepulchral terrors cannot be regarded as altogether fanciful but like the demons in whose company afrasiab made his journey down the oxus they must sleep or they will devour us they must be suffered to slumber or we perish end of the premature burial chapter eight of creepy tales by edgar allan poe berenice the epigraph reads decibent mihi sodalis si sepulcum amicaeo visitarum curas meas aliquantulum fore levatus eben zayat in english this is my companions told me I might find some alleviation of my misery, visiting the grave of my beloved. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform. Overreaching the wide horizon is the rainbow. Its hues are as various as the hues of that arch. As distinct, too, it is intimately blended. Overreaching the wide horizon is the rainbow. How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness? From the covenant of peace, a simile of sorrow. But as, in ethics, evil is a consequence of good, so, in fact, out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies of which are have their origin in ecstasies which might have been. My baptismal name is Ajaeus. That of my family I will not mention. 
Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honoured than my gloomy, grey, hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particulars, in the character of the family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief saloon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiselling of some buttresses in the armoury, but more especially in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, there is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber, and with its volumes, of which latter I will say no more. Here died my mother, herein was I born. But it is mere idleness to say that I had not lived before, that the soul has no previous existence. You deny it? Let us not argue the matter. Convince myself I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of spiritual and meaning eyes, of sounds, musical yet sad. A remembrance which will not be excluded. A memory like a shadow, vague, variable, indefinite, unsteady. And like a shadow, too, in the impossibility of my getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist. In that chamber was I born, thus awaking from the long night of what seemed, but was not, non-entity, at once into the very regions of fairyland, into a palace of imagination, into the wild dominions of monastic thought and erudition. It is not singular that I gazed around me with a startled and ardent eye, that I loitered away my boyhood in books, and dissipated my youth in reverie. But it is singular that as years rolled away, and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my father's, it is wonderful what stagnation there fell upon the springs of my life, Wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became, in turn, not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed, that existence utterly and solely in itself. Berenice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom. She, agile, graceful and overflowing with energy, Hers to ramble on the hillside, mine the studies of the cloister, I living within my own heart, and addicted, body and soul, to the most intense and painful meditation. She, roaming carelessly through life, with no thought of the shadows in her path, or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Berenice! I call upon her name, Berenice! And from the grey ruins of memory, a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. O gorgeous yet fantastic beauty, O sylph amid the shrubberies of Arnheim, O naiad among its foundations, and then, then all is mystery and terror, and a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the simoon upon her frame, and even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim... Where is she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Berenice. Among the numerous train of maladies superinduced by that fatal and primary one which effected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin, may be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature, a species of epilepsy not unfrequently terminating in trance itself, trance very nearly resembling positive dissolution, and from which her manner of recovery was in most instances startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease for I had been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease, then, grew rapidly upon me, and assumed finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form, hourly and momently gaining vigour, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I must so term it, consisted in a morbid irritability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science termed the attentive. 
It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear indeed that it is in no manner possible to convey to the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of that nervous intensity of interest with which, in my case, the powers of meditation, not to speak technically, busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long unwearied hours, with my attention riveted to some frivolous device on the margin, or in the typography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day, in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry or upon the floor, to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire, to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower, to repeat monotonously some common word until the sound, by dint of frequent repetition, ceased to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion or physical existence by means of absolute bodily quiescence long and obstinately persevered in, such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not, indeed, altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet let me not be misapprehended. The undue, earnest and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature frivolous must not be confounded in character with that ruminating propensity common to all mankind, and more especially indulged in by persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might be at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of such propensity, but primarily and essentially distinct and different. In the one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast, being interested by an object usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object in a wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom, until at the conclusion of a daydream often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum or first cause of his musings entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, although assuming, through the medium of my distempered vision, a refracted and unreal importance. Few deductions, if any, were made, and those few pertinaciously returning in upon the original object as a centre. The meditations were never pleasurable, and at the termination of the reverie, the first cause, so far from being out of sight, had attained that supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of mind more particularly exercised were, with me, as I have said before, the attentive, and are, with the daydreamer, the speculative. My books, at this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook it will be perceived, largely in their imaginative and inconsequential nature, of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. I well remember, among others, the treatise of the noble Italian Coelius Secundus Curio, De Amplitudine Beati Regni Dei, St. Austin's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian's De Cardina Christi, in which the paradoxical sentence, Mortuus est Dei Filius, Crible est Quia Ineptum est, et Sepultus Resurrexit. Certum esquia impossibile est, occupied my undivided time for many weeks of laborious and fruitless investigation. Thus it will appear that, shaken from its balance only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken of by Ptolemy Hephaestion, which steadily resisting the attacks of human violence, and the fiercer fury of the waters and the winds, trembled only to the touch of the flower called asphodel. And although to a careless thinker it might appear a matter beyond doubt, that the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Berenice, would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation, whose nature I have been at some trouble in explaining. Yet such was not in any degree the case. In lucid intervals of my infirmity, her calamity indeed gave me pain, and taking deeply to heart that total wreck of her fair and gentle life, I did not fall to ponder, frequently and bitterly, upon the wonder-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, and were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its own character, my disorder revelled in the less important but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Berenice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. 
During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart. My passion always were of the mind. Through the grey of the early morning, among the trellis shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as a living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream, not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as the abstraction of such a being, not as a thing to admire, but to analyse, not as an object of love, but as a theme of the most abstruse, although desultory, speculation. And now, now I shuddered in her presence, and grew pale at her approach, yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition. I called to mind that she had loved me long, and in an evil moment I spoke to her of marriage. And at length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of those unseasonably warm, calm and misty days which are the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon, I sat, and sat as I thought alone, in the inner apartment of the library, but lifting my eyes I saw that Berenice stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination, or the misty influence of the atmosphere, or the uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the grey draperies which fell around her figure, that caused in it so vacillating and indistinct an outline? I could not tell. She spoke no word, and I, not for worlds could I have uttered a syllable, an icy chill ran through my frame, a sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me, a consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances, at length, fell upon the face. The forehead was high, and very pale, and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it, and overshadowed the hollow temples with innumerable ringlets, now of a vivid yellow, and jarring discordantly in their fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lustreless and seemingly pupilless, and I shrank involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed Berenice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that, having done so, I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber, but from the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away, the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck on their surface, not a shade in their enamel, not an indenture in their edges, but what that period of her smile had sufficed to bring into my memory. I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth, oh, the teeth! They were here and there and everywhere, invisibly and palpably before me, long, narrow, and excessively white, with the pale lips writhing about them, as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with a frenzied desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon their peculiarities. I pondered upon their confirmation. I mused upon the alteration in their nature. I shuddered as I assigned to them imagination, a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. Of Mademoiselle Salle, it has been well said, Que tu sais pay un de sentiments. And of Berenice, I more seriously believed, Que tout se day atteint day a day, day a day. Ah, here was the idiotic thought that destroyed me. Day a day. Ah, therefore it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could ever alone restore me to peace and giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus. 
And then the darkness came, and tarried, and went, and the day again dawned, and the mists of a second night were now gathering around. And still I sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation. And still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy, as with the most vivid hideous distinctness, it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cries of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing out in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Berenice was no more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. I found myself sitting in the library, and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been interred. But of that dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with horror. Horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strived to decipher them, but in vain, while ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how came it there, upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, into a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular but simple ones of the poet Eben Zayat. Dicibent mihi sodales si sepulchrum amicaea visitarum, curas meas aliquantulum fora levatus. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body become congealed within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, and pale as a tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound, and his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it. But I could not force it open, and in my tremor it slipped from my hands and fell heavily, and burst into pieces. And from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled up some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white, and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. End of Berenice Chapter 9 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe Chapter 9 Lygia And the will therein lieth, which dieth not, Who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigour? For God is but a great will pervading all things by nature of its intentness. Man doth not yield himself to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. Joseph Glanville I cannot for my soul remember how, when, 
or even precisely where I first became acquainted with the Lady Ligeia. Long years have since elapsed, and my memory is feeble through much suffering. Or, perhaps, I cannot now bring these points to mind, because, in truth, the character of my beloved, her rare learning, her singular yet placid cast of beauty, and the thrilling and enthralling eloquence of her low musical language made their way into my heart by paces so steadily and stealthily progressive that they have been unnoticed and unknown yet i believe that i met her first and most frequently in some large old decaying city near the rhine of her family i have surely heard her speak that it is of a remotely ancient date cannot be doubted Lygia, Lygia, in studies of a nature more than all else adapted to deaden impressions of the outward world, it is by that sweet word alone, by Lygia, that I bring before mine eyes in fancy the image of her who is no more. And now, while I write, a recollection flashes upon me that I have never known the paternal name of her who was my friend and my betrothed and who became the partner of my studies, and finally the wife of my bosom. Was it a playful charge on the part of my Lygia, or was it a test of my strength of affection, that I should institute no inquiries upon this point? Or was it rather a caprice of my own, a wildly romantic offering on the shrine of the most passionate devotion? I but indistinctly recall the fact itself, what wonder that I have utterly forgotten the circumstances which originated or tended it! And indeed, if ever she, the wan and misty-winged Ashtophet of idolatrous Egypt, presided, as they tell, over marriages ill-omened, then most surely she presided over mine. There is one dear topic, however, on which my memory falls me not. It is the person of Lygia. In stature she was tall, somewhat slender, and, in her latter days, even emaciated. I would in vain attempt to portray the majesty, the quiet ease of her demeanour, or the incomprehensible lightness and elasticity of her footfall. She came and departed as a shadow. I was never made aware of her entrance into my closed study, save by the dear music of her low, sweet voice, as she placed her marble hand upon my shoulder. In beauty of face, no maiden ever equalled her. It was the radiance of an opium dream, an airy and spirit-lifting vision more wildly divine than the fantasies which hovered vision about the slumbering souls of the daughters of Delos. Yet her features were not of that regular mould which we have been falsely taught to worship in the classical labours of the heathen. There is no exquisite beauty, says Bacon, Lord Verulam speaking truly of all the forms and genera of beauty without some strangeness in the proportion yet although i saw that the features of lygia were not of a classic regularity although i perceived that her loveliness was indeed exquisite and felt that there was much of strangeness pervading it yet i have tried in vain to detect the irregularity and to trace home my own perception of the strange I examined the contour of the lofty and pale forehead. It was faultless. How cold indeed that word, when applied to a majesty so divine! 
the skin rivaling the purest ivory, the commanding extent and repose, the gentle prominence of the regions above the temples, and then the raven-black, the glossy, the luxuriant, and naturally curling tresses, setting forth the full force of the Homeric epithet, hyacinthine. I looked at the delicate outlines of the nose, and nowhere but in the graceful medallions of the Hebrews had I beheld a similar perfection. There were the same luxurious smoothness of the surface, the same scarcely perceptible tendency to the aquiline, the same harmoniously curved nostrils, speaking the free spirit. I regarded the sweet mouth. Here was indeed the triumph of all things heavenly, the magnificent turn of the short upper lip, the soft, voluptuous slumber of the under, the dimples which sported, and the color which spoke, the teeth glancing back with a brilliancy almost startling, every ray of the holy light which fell upon them in her serene and placid, yet most exultingly radiant of smiles. I scrutinized the formation of the chin, and here too I found the gentleness of breadth, the softness and the majesty, the fullness and the spirituality of the Greek, the contour which the god Apollo revealed but in a dream, to Cleomenes, the son of the Athenian, and then I peered into the large eyes of Lygia. For eyes we have no models in the remotely antique. It might have been, too, that in these days of my beloved lay the secret to which Lord Verulam alludes. They were, I must believe, far larger than the ordinary eyes of our own race. They were even fuller than the fullest of the gazelle eyes of the tribe of the valley of Nurjahad. Yet it was only at intervals, in moments of intense excitement, that this peculiarity became more than slightly noticeable in Lygia, and at such moments was her beauty, in my heated fancy thus it appeared perhaps, the beauty of beings either above or apart from the earth the beauty of the fabulous hurry of the Turk. The hue of the orbs was the most brilliant of black, and far over them hung jetty lashes of great length. The brows, slightly irregular in outline, had the same tint. The strangeness, however, which I found in the eyes, was of a nature distinct from the formation, or the color, or the brilliancy of the features, and must, after all, be referred to in the expression ah word of no meaning behind whose vast latitude of mere sound we entrench our ignorance of so much of the spiritual the expression of the eyes of lygia how for long hours i have pondered upon it how have i through the whole of the midsummer night struggled to fathom it what was it that something more profound than the well of democritus which lay far within the pupils of my beloved what was it i was possessed with a passion to discover those eyes, those large, those shining, those divine orbs, they became to me twin stars of Leda, and I to them devoutest of astrologers. There is no point, among the many incomprehensible anomalies of the science of mind, more thrillingly exciting than the fact, never, I believe, noticed in the schools, that in our endeavors to recall to memory something long forgotten, we often find ourselves upon the very verge of remembrance, without being able, in the end, to remember. 
and thus how frequently in my intense scrutiny of ligeia's eyes have i felt approaching the full knowledge of their expression felt it approaching yet not quite be mine and so at length entirely depart and strange o oh, strangest mystery of all i found in the commonest objects of the universe a circle of analogies to that expression i mean to say that subsequently to the period when ligeia's beauty passed into my spirit there dwelling as in a shrine i derived from many existences in the material world a sentiment such as i felt always aroused within me by her large and luminous orbs yet not the more could i define that sentiment nor analyze nor even steadily view it i recognized it let me repeat sometimes in the survey of a rapidly growing vine in the contemplation of a moth a butterfly a chrysalis a stream of running water i have felt it in the ocean in the falling of a meteor i have felt it in the glances of unusually aged people and there are one or two stars in heaven one especially a star of the sixth magnitude double and changeable to be found near the large star in lyra in a telescopic scrutiny of which i have been made aware of the feeling i have been filled with it by certain sounds from stringed instruments and not unfrequently by passages from books among innumerable other instances i well remember something in a volume of joseph glanville which perhaps merely from its quaintness who shall say never failed to inspire me with the sentiment and the will therein lieth which dieth not who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigour for god is but a great will pervading all things by nature of its intentness man doth not yield him to the angels nor unto death utterly save only through the weakness of his feeble will length of years and subsequent reflection have enabled me to trace indeed some remote connection between this passage in the english moralist and a portion of the character of ligeia an intensity in thought action or speech was possibly in her a result or at least an index of that gigantic volition which during our long intercourse failed to give other and more immediate evidence of its existence of all the women whom i have ever known she the outwardly calm the ever placid ligeia was the most violently a prey to the tumultuous vultures of stern passion and of such passion i could form no estimate save by the miraculous expansion of those eyes which at once so delighted and appalled me by the almost magical melody modulation distinctness and placidity of her very low voice and by the fierce energy rendered doubly effective by contrast with her manner of utterance of the wild words which she habitually uttered i have spoken of the learning of ligeia it was immense such as i have never known in woman in the classical tongues she was deeply proficient and as far as my own acquaintance extended in regard to the modern dialects of europe i have never known her at fault indeed upon any theme of the most admired because simply the most abstruse of the boasted erudition of the academy have i ever found ligeia at fault how singularly how thrillingly this one point in the nature of my wife has forced itself at this late period only upon my attention 
I said her knowledge was such as I have never known in woman. But where breathes the man who has traversed, and successfully, all the wide areas of moral, physical, and mathematical science? I saw not then what I now clearly perceive, that the acquisitions of Lygia were gigantic, were astounding. Yet I was sufficiently aware of her infinite supremacy to resign myself, with a childlike confidence, to her guidance through the chaotic world of metaphysical investigation, at which I was most busily occupied during the earlier years of our marriage. With how vast a triumph, with how vivid a delight, with how much of all that is ethereal in hope did I feel, as she bent over me in studies, but little sought, but less known, that delicious vista by slow degrees expanding before me, down those long, gorgeous, and all untrodden paths, I might at length pass onward to the goal of a wisdom too divinely precious not to be forbidden. How poignant, then, must have been the grief with which, after some years, I beheld my well-grounded expectations take wings to themselves and fly away. Without Lygia, I was but as a child groping benighted. Her presence, her readings alone, rendered vividly luminous the many mysteries of the transcendentalism in which we were immersed. Wanting the radiant lustre of her eyes, letters, lambent and golden, grew duller than Saturnian lead. And now those eyes shone less and less frequently upon the pages over which I pored. Lygia grew ill. The wild eyes blazed with a too, too glorious effulgence. The pale fingers became of the transparent waxen hue of the grave, and the blue veins upon the lofty forehead swelled and sank impetuously with the tides of the gentle emotion. I saw that she must die, and I struggled desperately in spirit with the grim Azrael. And the struggles of the passionate wife were, to my astonishment, even more energetic than my own. There had been much in her stern nature to impress me with the belief that, to her, death would have come without its terrors, but not so. Words are impotent to convey any just idea of the fierceness of resistance with which she wrestles with the shadow. I groaned in anguish at the pitiable spectacle. I would have soothed, I would have reasoned, but in the intensity of her wild desire for life, for life, but for life, solace and reason were the uttermost folly. Yet, not until the last instance, amid the most convulsive writhings of her fierce spirit, was shaken the external placidity of her demeanour. Her voice grew more gentle, grew more low, Yet I would not wish to dwell upon the wild meaning of the quietly uttered words. My brain reeled as I hearkened, entranced, to a melody more than mortal, to assumptions and aspirations which mortality had never before known. That she loved me, I should not have doubted, and I might have been easily aware that, in a bosom such as hers, love would have reigned no ordinary passion but, in death only, was I fully impressed with the strength of her affection. For long hours, detaining my hand, would she pour out before me the overflowing of a heart whose more than passionate devotion amounted to idolatry. How had I deserved to be so blessed by such confessions? How had I deserved to be so cursed with the removal of my beloved in the hour of her making them? But, upon this subject, I cannot bear to dilate. Let me say only, 
that in Lygia is more than womanly abandonment to a love, alas, all unmerited, all unworthily bestowed. I at length recognized the principle of her longing, with so wildly earnest a desire for the life which was now fleeing so rapidly away. It is this wild longing, it is this eager vehemence of desire for life, but for life, that I have no power to portray, no utterance capable of expressing. At high noon of the night in which she departed, beckoning me preemptorily to her side, she bade me repeat certain verses composed by herself not many days before. I obeyed her. They were these. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years, an angel throng bewinged, bedight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theatre to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes, in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they, who come and go, at bidding of vast formless things, that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe. That motley drama, oh, be sure it shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth in to the self-same spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude, it writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and the seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm, that the play is the tragedy, man, and its hero, the conqueror, worm. O oh God! half shrieked Lygia, leaping to her feet, and extending her arms aloft with a spasmodic movement, as I made an end of these lines. O oh God! O oh Divine Father! Shall these things be undeviatingly so? Shall this conqueror be not once conquered? Are we not part and parcel in thee? Who? Who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigour? Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. And now, as if exhausted with emotion, she suffered her white arms to fall, and returned solemnly to her bed of death. And as she breathed her last sighs, there came mingled with them a low murmur from her lips. I bent to them my ear and distinguished, again, the concluding words of the passage in Glanville, Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. She died, and I, crushed into the very dust with sorrow, could no longer endure the lonely desolation of my dwelling in the dim and decaying city by the Rhine. I had no lack of what the world calls wealth. Lygia had brought me far more, very far more than ordinarily falls to the lot of mortals. After a few months, therefore, of weary and aimless wandering, I purchased and put in some repair an abbey, 
which I shall not name, in one of the wildest and least frequented portions of fair England. The gloomy and dreary grandeur of the building, the almost savage aspect of the domain, the many melancholy and time-honoured memories connected with both, had much in unison with the feelings of utter abandonment which had driven me into that remote and unsocial region of the country. Yet, although the external abbey, with its verdant decay hanging about it, suffered but little alteration, I gave way, with a childlike perversity, and perchance with a faint hope of alleviating my sorrows, to a display of more than regal magnificence within. For such follies, even in childhood, I had imbibed a taste, and now they came back to me, as if in the dotage of grief. Alas! I feel how much even of the incipient madness might have been discovered in the gorgeous and fantastic draperies, in the solemn carvings of Egypt, in the wild cornices and furniture, in the bedlam patterns of the carpets of tufted gold. I had become a bounden slave in the trammels of opium, and my labours and my orders had taken a colouring from my dreams. But these absurdities must not pause to detail. Let me speak only of that one chamber, ever accursed, whither, in a moment of mental alienation, I led from the altar as my bride, as the successor of the unforgotten Lygia, the fair-haired and blue-eyed Lady Rowena Trevanion of Tremaine. There is no individual portion of the architecture and decoration of that bridal chamber which is not now visibly before me. Where were the souls of the haughty family of the bride when, through thirst of gold, they permitted to pass the threshold of an apartment so bedecked, a maiden, and a daughter so beloved? I have said that I minutely remember the details of the chamber, yet I am sadly forgetful on topics of deep moment, and here there was no system, no keeping, in the fantastic display, to take hold upon the memory. The room lay in a high turret of the castellated abbey, was pentagonal in shape, and of capacious size. Occupying the whole southern face of the Pentagon was the sole window, an immense sheet of unbroken glass from Venice, a single pane, and tinted of a leaden hue, so that the rays of either the sun or moon, passing through it, fell with a ghastly lustre on the objects within. Over the upper portion of this huge window extended the trellis-work of an aged vine, which clambered up the massy walls of the turret. The ceiling, of gloomy-looking oak, was excessively lofty, vaulted, and elaborately fretted with the wildest and most grotesque specimens of a semi-gothic, semi-druidical device. From out the most central recess of this melancholy vaulting depended, by a single chain of gold with long links, a huge censer of the same metal, Saracenic in pattern, and with many perforations so contrived that there writhed in and out of them, as if endued with a serpent vitality, a continual succession of party-coloured fires. Some few ottomans and golden candelabra of eastern figure were in various stations about, and there was the couch, too, bridal couch, of an Indian model, and low, and sculptured of solid ebony, with a pall-like canopy above. In each of the angles of the chamber stood on end a gigantic sarcophagus of black granite, from the tombs of the kings over against Luxor, with their aged lids full of immemorial sculpture. But in the draping of the apartment lay, alas, the chief fantasy of all, the lofty walls, gigantic in height, 
even unproportionably so, were hung from summit to foot in vast folds with the heavy and massive-looking tapestry, tapestry of a material which was found alike as carpet on the floor, as a covering for the ottomans, and the ebony bed, and as a canopy for the bed, and as the gorgeous volutes of the curtains, which partially shaded the window. The material was the richest cloth of gold. It was spotted all over, at regular intervals, with arabesque figures, about a foot in diameter, and wrought upon the cloth in patterns of the most jetty black. But these figures partook of the true character of the arabesque only when regarded from a single point of view, by a contrivance now common, and indeed traceable to a very remote period of antiquity. They were made changeable in aspect. To one entering the room, they bore the appearance of simple monstrosities, but upon a farther advance this appearance gradually departed, and step by step, as the visitor moved his station in the chamber, he saw himself surrounded by an endless succession of the ghastly forms which belong to the superstition of the Norman, or arise in the guilty slumbers of the monk. The phantasmagoric effect was vastly heightened by the artificial introduction of a strong continual current of wind behind the draperies, giving a hideous and uneasy animation to the whole. In halls such as these, in a bridal chamber such as this, I passed, with the Lady Tremaine, the unhallowed hours of the first month of our marriage, passed them with but little disquietude. That my wife dreaded the fierce moodiness of my temper, that she shunned me and loved me but little, I could not help perceiving, but it gave me rather pleasure than otherwise. I loathed her with a hatred belonging more to demon than to man. My memory flew back, oh, with what intensity of regret, till Igea, the beloved, the august, the beautiful, the entombed. I reveled in recollections of her purity, of her wisdom, of her lofty, her ethereal nature of her passionate, her idolatrous love. Now then did my spirit fully and freely burn with more than all the fires of her own. In the excitement of my opium dreams, for I was habitually fettered in the shackles of the drug, I would call aloud upon her name during the silence of the night, or among the sheltered recesses of the glens by day, as if, through the wild eagerness, the solemn passion, the consuming ardour of my longing for the departed, I could restore her to the pathway she had abandoned. Ah, oh, could it be for ever upon the earth! About the commencement of the second month of the marriage, the Lady Rowena was attacked with sudden illness, from which her recovery was slow. The fever which consumed her rendered her nights uneasy, and in her perturbed state of half-slumber she spoke of sounds and of motions, in and about the chamber of the turret, which I concluded had no origin save in the distemper of her fancy, or, perhaps, in the phantasmagoric influences of the chamber itself. She became at length convalescent, finally well. Yet but a brief period elapsed, ere a second more violent disorder again threw her upon a bed of suffering, and from this attack her frame, at all times feeble, never altogether recovered. Her illnesses were, after this epoch, of alarming character, and of more alarming recurrence, defying alike the knowledge and the great exertions of her physicians. 
with the increase of the chronic disease which had thus apparently taken too sure hold upon her constitution to be eradicated by human means i could not fall to observe a similar increase in the nervous irritation of her temperament and in her excitability by trivial causes of fear she spoke again and now more frequently and pertinaciously of the sounds of the slight sounds and of the unusual motions among the tapestries to which she had formerly alluded one night near the closing in of september she pressed this distressing subject with more than usual emphasis upon my attention she had just awakened from an unquiet slumber and i had been watching with feelings half of anxiety half of vague terror the workings of her emaciated countenance i sat by the side of her ebony bed upon one of the ottomans of india she partly arose and spoke in an earnest low whisper of the sounds which she then heard but which i could not hear of motions which she then saw but which i could not perceive the wind was rushing hurriedly behind the tapestries and i wished to show her what let me confess it i could not all believe that those almost inarticulate breathings and those very gentle variations of the figures upon the wall were but the natural effects of that customary rushing of the wind but a deadly pallor overspreading her face had proved to me that my exertions to reassure her would be fruitless she appeared to be fainting and no attendants were within call i remember there was deposited a decanter of light wine which had been ordered by her physicians and hastened across the chamber to procure it but as i stepped beneath the light of the censer two circumstances of a startling nature attracted my attention i had felt that some palpable although invisible object had passed lightly by my person and i saw that there lay upon the golden carpet in the very middle of the rich lustre thrown from the censer a shadow a faint indefinite shadow of angelic aspect such as might be fancied for the shadow of a shade but i was wild with the excitement of an immoderate dose of opium and heeded these things but little and heeded these things but little nor spoke of them to rowena having found the wine i recrossed the chamber and poured out a gobletful which i held to the lips of the fainting lady she had now partially recovered however and took the vessel herself while i sank upon an ottoman near me with my eyes fastened upon her person it was then that i became distinctly aware of a gentle footfall upon the carpet and near the couch and in a second thereafter as rowena was in the act of raising the wine to her lips i saw or may have dreamed that i saw fall within the goblet as if from some invisible spring in the atmosphere of the room three or four large drops of a brilliant and ruby-coloured fluid if this i saw not so rowena she swallowed the wine unhesitatingly and i forbore to speak to her of a circumstance which must after all i considered have been but the suggestion of a vivid imagination rendered morbidly active by the terror of the lady by the opium and by the hour yet i cannot conceal it from my own perception that immediately subsequent to the fall of the ruby drops a rapid change for the worse took place in the disorder of my wife so that on the third subsequent night the hands of her menials prepared her for the tomb and on the fourth i sat alone with her shrouded body in that fantastic chamber which had received her as my bride wild visions opium engendered flitted shadow-like before me 
I gazed with unquiet eye upon the sarcophagi in the angles of the room, upon the varying figures of the drapery, and upon the writhing of the parti-coloured fires in the censer overhead. My eyes then fell, as I called to mind the circumstances of a former night, to the spot beneath the glare of the censer, where I had seen the faint traces of the shadow. It was there, however, no longer, and breathing with greater freedom, I turned my glances to the pallid and rigid figure upon the bed. Then rushed upon me a thousand memories of Lygia, and then came back upon my heart, with the turbulent violence of a flood, the whole of that unutterable woe with which I had regarded her thus enshrouded. The night waned, and still, with a bosom full of bitter thoughts of the one only and supremely beloved, I remained gazing upon the body of Rowena. It might have been at midnight, or perhaps earlier, or later, for I had taken no note of time, when a sob, low, gentle, but very distinct, startled me from my reverie. I felt that it came from the bed of ebony, the bed of death. I listened in an agony of superstitious terror, but there was no repetition of the sound. I strained my vision to detect any motion in the corpse, but there was not the slightest perceptible. Yet I could not have been deceived. I had heard the noise, however faint, and my soul was awakened within me. I resolutely and perseveringly kept my attention riveted upon the body. Many minutes elapsed before any circumstance occurred, tending to throw light upon the mystery. At length it became evident that a slight, a very feeble and barely noticeable tinge of colour had flushed up within the cheeks and along the sunken small veins of the eyelids through a species of unutterable horror and awe for which the language of mortality has no sufficiently energetic expression i felt my heart cease to beat my limbs grow rigid where i sat yet a sense of duty finally operated to restore my self-possession i could no longer doubt that we had been precipitate in our preparations that rowena still lived it was necessary that some immediate exertion be made yet church was altogether apart from the portion of the abbey tenanted by the servants there were none within call i had no means of summoning them to my aid without leaving the room for many minutes and this i could not venture to do i therefore struggled alone in my endeavours to call back the spirit ill hovering in a short period it was certain however that a relapse had taken place the colour disappeared from both eyelid and cheek leaving a wanness even more than that of marble the lips became doubly shrivelled and pinched up in the ghastly expression of death a repulsive clamminess and coldness overspread rapidly the surface of the body and all the usual rigorous illness immediately supervened i fell back with a shudder upon the couch from which i had been so startlingly aroused and again gave myself up to passionate waking visions of lygia an hour thus elapsed when could it be possible i was a second time aware of some vague sound issuing from the region of the bed i listened in extremity of horror the sound came again it was a sigh rushing to the corpse i saw distinctly saw a tremor upon the lips in a minute afterward they relaxed disclosing a bright line of the pearly teeth amazement now struggled in my bosom with the profound awe which had hitherto reigned there alone I felt that my vision grew dim, that my reason wandered, and it was only by a violent effort that I at length succeeded in nerving myself to the task which duty thus once more had pointed out. There was now a partial glow upon the forehead and upon the cheek and throat. 
a perceptible warmth pervaded the whole frame there was even a slight pulsation at the heart the lady lived and with redoubled ardour i betook myself to the task of restoration i chafed and bathed the temples and the hands and used every exertion which experience and no little medical reading could suggest but in vain suddenly the colour fled the pulsation ceased the lips resumed the expression of the dead and in an instant afterward the whole body took upon itself the icy chillingness the livid hue the intense rigidity the sunken outline and all the loathsome peculiarities of that which has been for many days a tenant of the tomb and again i sunk into visions of lygia and again what marvel that i shudder while i write again there reached my ears a low sob from the region of the ebony bed but why shall i minutely detail the unspeakable horrors of that night why shall i pause to relate how time after time until near the period of the grey dawn this hideous drama of revivification was repeated how each terrific relapse was only into a sterner and apparently more irredeemable death how each agony wore the aspect of a struggle with some invisible foe and how each struggle was succeeded by i know not what of a wild change in the personal appearance of the corpse let me hurry to a conclusion the greater part of the fearful night had worn away, and she who had been dead once again stirred, and now more vigorously than hitherto, although arousing from a dissolution more appalling in its utter hopelessness than any. I had long ceased to struggle, or to move, and remained sitting rigidly upon the ottoman, a helpless prey to a whirl of violent emotions, of which extreme awe was perhaps the least terrible, the least consuming the corpse i repeat stirred and now more vigorously than before the hues of life flushed up with unwonted energy into the countenance the limbs relaxed and save that the eyelids were yet pressed heavily together and that the bandages and draperies of the grave still imparted their charnel character to the figure i might have dreamed that rowena had indeed shaken off utterly fetters of death but if this idea was not even then altogether adopted I could at least doubt no longer, when arising from the bed, tottering, with feeble steps, with closed eyes, and with the manner of one bewildered in a dream, the thing that was enshrouded advanced boldly and palpably into the middle of the apartment. I trembled not, I stirred not, for a crowd of unutterable fancies connected with the air, the stature, the demeanour of the figure, rushed hurriedly through my brain, had paralysed, had chilled me into stone. I stirred not, but gazed upon the apparition. There was a mad disorder in my thoughts, a tumult unappeasable. Could it, indeed, be the living Rowena who confronted me? Could it indeed be Rowena at all, the fair-haired, the blue-eyed, Lady Rowena Trevanian of Tremaine? Why, why should I doubt it? The bandage lay heavily about the mouth. But then might it not be the mouth of the breathing lady of Tremaine, and the cheeks? There were the roses as in her noon of life. Yes, these might indeed be the fair cheeks of the living lady of Tremaine, and the chin, with its dimples, as in health, might it not be hers? But had she then grown taller since her malady? What inexpressible madness seized me with that thought? One bound, and I had reached her feet, shrinking from my touch she let fall from her head unloosened the ghastly cerements which had confined it and there streamed forth 
into the rushing atmosphere of the chamber huge masses of long and disheveled hair it was blacker than the raven wings of the midnight and now slowly opened the eyes of the figure which stood before me here then at least i shrieked aloud can i never can i never be mistaken these are the full and the black and the wild eyes of my lost love of the lady of the lady lygia end of lygia chapter ten of creepy tales by edgar allan poe hop frog i never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was he seemed to live only for joking to tell a good story of the joke kind and to tell it well was the surest road to his favor thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokers they all took after the king too in being large corpulent oily men as well as inimitable jokers whether people grow fat by joking or whether there is something in fat itself which predisposes to a joke i have never been quite able to determine but certain it is that a lean joker is a rara avis in terris about the refinements or as he called them the ghost of wit the king troubled himself very little he had an especial admiration for breadth in a jest and would often put up with lank for the sake of it over niceties wearied him he would have preferred rabelais gargantua to the zadig of voltaire and upon the whole practical jokes suited his taste far better than verbal ones at the date of my narrative professing jesters had not altogether gone out of fashion at court several of the great continental powers still retained their fools who wore motley with caps and bells and who were expected to be always ready with sharp witticisms at a moment's notice in consideration of the crumbs that fell from the royal table our king as a matter of course retained his fool the fact is he required something in the way of folly if only to counterbalance the heavy wisdom of the seven wise men who were his ministers not to mention himself his fool or professional jester was not only a fool however his value was trebled in the eyes of the king by the fact of his also being a dwarf and a cripple dwarfs were as common at court in those days as fools and many monarchs would have found it difficult to get through their days days are rather long at court than elsewhere without both a jester to laugh with and a dwarf to laugh at but as i have already observed your jesters in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred are fat round and unwieldy so that it was no small source of self-gratulation with our king that in hopfrog this was the fool's name he possessed a triplicate treasure in one person i believe the name hopfrog was not that given to the dwarf by his sponsors at baptism but it was conferred upon him by general consent of the several ministers on account of his inability to walk as other men do in fact hopfrog could only get along by a sort of interjectional gait something between a leap and a wriggle a movement that afforded ill-imitable amusement and of course consolation to the king for notwithstanding the protuberance of his stomach and a constitutional swelling of the head the king by his whole court 
was accounted a capital figure. But although Hopfrog, through the distortion of his legs, could move only with great pain and difficulty along a road or floor, the prodigious muscular power which nature seemed to have bestowed upon his arms by way of compensation for deficiency in the lower limbs enabled him to perform many feats of wonderful dexterity where trees or ropes were in question or anything else to climb. At such exercises he certainly much more resembled a squirrel or a small monkey than a frog. I am not able to say with precision from what country Hopfrog originally came. It was from some barbarous region, however, that no person ever heard of, a vast distance from the court of our king. Hopfrog and a young girl very little less dwarfish than himself, although of exquisite proportions and a marvellous dancer, had been forcibly carried off from their respective homes in adjoining provinces and sent as presents to the king by one of his ever-victorious generals. Under these circumstances, it is not to be wondered at that a close intimacy arose between the two little captives. Indeed, they soon became sworn friends. Hopfrog, who, although he made a great deal of sport, was by no means popular, had it not in his power to render Trippetta many services, but she, on account of her grace and exquisite beauty, although a dwarf, was universally admired and petted, so she possessed much influence, and never failed to use it whenever she could for the benefit of Hopfrog. On some grand state occasion, I forgot what, the king determined to have a masquerade, and whenever a masquerade or anything of that kind occurred at our court, then the talents both of Hopfrog and Trippetta were sure to be called into play. Hopfrog, in especial, was so inventive in the way of getting up pageants, suggesting novel characters, and arranging costumes for masked balls, that nothing could be done, it seems, without his assistance. The night appointed for the feat had arrived. A gorgeous hall had been fitted up under Trippetta's eye with every kind of device which could possibly give a clat to a masquerade. The whole court was in a fever of expectation. As for costumes and characters, it might well be supposed that everybody had come to a decision on such points. Many had made up their minds as to what roles they should assume, a week or even a month in advance, and, in fact, there was not a particle of indecision anywhere, except in the case of the king and his seven ministers. Why they hesitated, I never could tell, unless they did it by way of a joke. More probably, they found it difficult, on account of being so fat, to make up their minds. At all events, time flew, and, as a last resort, they sent for Trippetta and Hopfrog. When the two little friends obeyed the summons of the king, they found him sitting at his wine with the seven members of his cabinet council. But the monarch appeared to be in a very ill humor. He knew that Hopfrog was not fond of wine, for it excited the poor cripple almost to madness, and madness is no comfortable feeling. But the king loved his practical jokes and took pleasure in forcing Hopfrog to drink and, as the king called it, to be merry. Come here, Hopfrog, said he, as the jester and his friends entered the room. Swallow this bumper to the health of your absent friends, here Hopfrog sighed, and then let us have the benefit of your invention. We want characters, characters, man, something novel, out of the way. 
We are wearied with this everlasting sameness. Come, drink! The wine will brighten your wits. Hopfrog endeavored, as usual, to get up a jest in reply to these advances from the king, but the effort was too much. It happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday, and the command to drink to his absent friends forced the tears to his eyes. Many large, bitter drops fell into the goblet as he took it humbly from the hand of the tyrant. Ah! Ha! Ha! roared the latter as the dwarf reluctantly drained the beaker. See what a glass of good wine can do! Why, your eyes are shining already! Poor fellow! His large eyes gleamed, rather than shone, for the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous. He placed the goblet nervously on the table, and looked round upon the company with a half-insane stare. They all seemed highly amused at the success of the king's joke. "'And now to business,' said the Prime Minister, a very fat man. "'Yes,' said the king. "'Come lend us your assistance. "'Characters, my fine fellow. "'We stand in need of characters. "'All of us. "'Ha, ha, ha!' "'And, as this was seriously meant for a joke, "'his laugh was chorused by the seven. "'Hopfrog also laughed, although feebly and somewhat vacantly. "'Come, come,' said the king impatiently. "'Have you nothing to suggest?' "'I am endeavouring to think of something novel, replied the dwarf, abstractedly, for he was quite bewildered by the wine. Endeavoring, cried the tyrant fiercely. What do you mean by that? Ah, I perceive. You are sulky and want more wine. Here, drink this. And he poured out another gobletful and offered it to the cripple, who merely gazed at it, gasping for breath. Drink, I say shouted the monster, or by the fiends! The dwarf hesitated. The king grew purple with rage. The courtiers smirked. Trippetta, pale as a corpse, advanced to the monarch's seat and, falling on her knees before him, implored him to spare her friend. The tyrant regarded her for some moments in evident wonder at her audacity. He seemed quite at a loss what to do or say, how most becomingly to express his indignation. At last, without uttering a syllable, he pushed her violently from him and threw the contents of the brimming goblet in her face. The poor girl got up the best she could and, not daring even to sigh, resumed her position at the foot of the table. There was a dead silence for about half a minute, during which the falling of a leaf or of a feather might have been heard. It was interrupted by a low but harsh and protracted grating sound, which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room. What? What? What are you making that noise for? demanded the king, turning furiously to the dwarf. The latter seemed to have recovered in great measure from his intoxication, and looking fixedly but quietly into the tyrant's face, merely ejaculated, I? I? How could it have been me? The sound appeared to come from without, observed one of the courtiers. I fancy it was the parrot at the window, wetting his bill upon his cage wires. True, replied the monarch, as if much relieved by the suggestion. 
but on the honor of a knight, I could have sworn that it was the gritting of this vagabond's teeth. Hereupon the dwarf laughed. The king was too confirmed a joker to object to anyone's laughing, and displayed a set of large, powerful, and very repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as desired. The monarch was pacified, and having drained another bumper, with no very perceptible ill effect, Hopfrog entered at once and with spirit into the plans for the masquerade. I cannot tell what was the association of idea, observed he, very tranquilly, as if he had never tasted wine in his life. But just after your majesty had struck the girl and thrown the wine in her face, just after your majesty had done this, and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside the window, there came into my mind a capital diversion, one of my own country frolics, often enacted among us at our masquerades. But here it will be new altogether. Unfortunately, however, it requires a company of eight persons, and— Here we are, cried the king, laughing at his acute discovery of the coincidence. Eight to a fraction, I and my seven ministers. Come, what is the diversion? We call it, replied the cripple, the eight-chained orangutans, and it really is excellent sport if well enacted. "'We will enact it,' remarked the king, drawing himself up and lowering his eyelids. "'The beauty of the game,' continued Hopfrog, "'lies in the fright it occasions among the women.' "'Capital!' roared in chorus the monarch and his ministry. "'I will equip you as orangutans,' proceeded the dwarf. "'Leave all that to me.' The resemblance shall be so striking that the company of masqueraders will take you for real beasts, and of course they will be as much terrified as astonished. Oh, this is quite exquisite, exclaimed the king. Hop frog, I will make a man of you. The chains are for the purpose of increasing the confusion by their jangling. You are supposed to have escaped en masse from your keepers. Your majesty cannot conceive the effect produced at a masquerade by eight chained orangutans, imagined to be real ones by most of the company, and rushing in with savage cries among the crowd of delicately and gorgeously habited men and women. The contrast is inimitable. It must be, said the king, and the council arose hurriedly, as it was growing late, to put in execution the scheme of Hopfrog. His mode of equipping the party as orangutans was very simple, but effective enough for his purposes. The animals in question had, at the epoch of my story, very rarely been seen in any part of the civilized world, and as the imitations made by the dwarf were sufficiently beast-like and more than sufficiently hideous, their truthfulness to nature was thus thought to be secured. The king and his ministers were first encased in tight-fitting stockinette shirts and drawers. They were then saturated with tar. At this stage of the process, some one of the parties suggested feathers, but the suggestion was at once overruled by the dwarf, who soon convinced the eight, by ocular demonstration, that the hair of such a brute as the orangutan was much more efficiently represented by flu. 
a thick coating of the latter was accordingly plastered upon the coating of tar. A long chain was now procured. First it was passed about the waist of the king and tied, then about another of the party and also tied, then about all successively in the same manner. When this chaining arrangement was complete, and the party stood as far apart from each other as possible, they formed a circle, and to make all things appear natural, Hopfrog passed the residue of the chain in two diameters at right angles, across the circle, after the fashion adopted at the present day by those who capture chimpanzees or other large apes in Borneo. The grand saloon in which the masquerade was to take place was a circular room, very lofty, and receiving the light of the sun only through a single window at top. At night, the season for which the apartment was especially designed, it was illuminated principally by a large chandelier, depending by a chain from the center of the skylight, and lowered, or elevated, by means of a counterbalance as usual, but, in order not to look unsightly, this ladder passed outside the cupola and over the roof. The arrangements of the room had been left to Terpeta's superintendence, but in some particulars, it seems, she had been guided by the calmer judgment of her friend the dwarf. At his suggestion, it was that on this occasion the chandelier was removed, its waxen drippings, which, in weather so warm it was quite impossible to prevent, would have been seriously detrimental to the rich dresses of the guests, who, on account of the crowded state of the saloon, could not all be expected to keep from out its center, that is to say, from under the chandelier. Additional sconces were set in various parts of the hall, out of the war, and a flambeau emitting a sweet odor was placed in the right hand of each of the caryatides that stood against the wall, some fifty or sixty altogether. The eight orangutans, taking Hopfrog's advice, waited patiently until midnight, when the room was thoroughly filled with masqueraders, before making their appearance. No sooner had the clock ceased striking, however, than they rushed, or rather rolled, in, all together, for the impediments of their chains caused most of the party to fall, and all to stumble as they entered. The excitement among the masqueraders was prodigious, and filled the heart of the king with glee. As had been anticipated, there were not a few of the guests who supposed the ferocious-looking creatures to be beasts of some kind in reality, if not precisely orangutans. Many of the women swooned with affright, and had not the king taken the precaution to exclude all weapons from the saloon, his party might soon have expiated their frolic in their blood. As it was, a general rush was made for the doors, but the king had ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance, and, at the dwarf's suggestion, the keys had been deposited with him. While the tumult was at its height, and each masquerader attentive only to his own safety, for in fact there was much real danger from the pressure of the excited crowd, the chain by which the chandelier ordinarily hung, and which had been drawn up on its removal, might have been seen very gradually to descend, until its hooked extremity came within three feet of the floor. Soon after this, the king and his seven friends, having reeled about the hall in all directions, found themselves at length in its center, and, of course, in immediate contact with the chain. While they were thus situated, 
The dwarf, who had followed noiselessly at their heels, inciting them to keep up the commotion, took hold of their own chain at the intersection of the two portions which crossed the circle diametrically and at right angles. Here, with the rapidity of thought, he inserted the hook from which the chandelier had been wont to depend, and, in an instant, by some unseen agency, the chandelier chain was drawn so far upward as to take the hook out of reach, and as an inevitable consequence to drag the orangutans together in close connection and face to face. The masqueraders, by this time, had recovered in some measure from their alarm, and, beginning to regard the whole matter as a well-contrived pleasantry, set up a loud shout of laughter at the predicament of the apes. "'Leave them to me!' now screamed Hopfrog, his shrill voice making itself easily heard through all the dim. "'Leave them to me! I fancy I know them! If I can only get a good look at them, I can soon tell who they are!' Here, scrambling over the heads of the crowd, he managed to get to the wall, when, seizing a flambeau from one of the caryatides, he returned as he went to the center of the room, leaping with the agility of a monkey upon the king's head, and thence clambered a few feet up the chain, holding down the torch to examine the group of orangutans, and still screaming, I shall soon find out who they are. And now, while the whole assembly, the apes included, were convulsed with laughter, the jester suddenly uttered a shrill whistle, when the chain flew violently up for about thirty feet, dragging with it the dismayed and struggling orangutans, and leaving them suspended in mid-air between the skylight and the floor. Hopfrog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position in respect to the eight maskers, and still, as if nothing were the matter, continued to thrust his torch down toward them, as though endeavoring to discover who they were. So thoroughly astonished was the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by such a low, harsh, grating sound, as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counsellors when the former threw the wine in the face of Trepetta. But on the present occasion there could be no question as to whence the sound issued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf, who ground them and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared with an expression of maniacal rage into the upturned countenances of the king and his seven companions. Aha! said at length the infuriated jester. Aha! I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen coat which enveloped him, and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely amid the shrieks of the multitude who gazed at them from below, horror-stricken, and without the power to render them the slightest assistance. At length, the flames, suddenly increasing in virulence, forced the jester to climb higher up the chain, to be out of their reach, and, as he made this movement, the crowd again sank for a brief instant into silence. The dwarf seized the opportunity and once more spoke. "'I now see distinctly,' he said, "'what manner of people these maskers are. 
They are a great king and his seven privy counselors, a king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl, and his seven counselors who abet him in this outrage. As for myself, I am simply Hopfrog the Jester, and this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both the flax and the tar to which it adhered, the dwarf had scarcely made an end of his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses swung in their chains, a fetid, blackened, hideous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely to the ceiling, and disappeared through the skylight. It is supposed that Trepetta, stationed on the roof of the saloon, had been the accomplice of her friend in this fiery revenge, and that, together, they effected their escape to their own country, for neither was seen again. End of Hopfrog Chapter 11 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Raven Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember. It was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger. Hesitating then no longer, "'Sir,' said I, "'or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping.' And so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into that chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon I heard again a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something in my window lattice. Let me see, then, what there it is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. 
Open here I flung the shutter when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped the stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not an instant stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door, with such name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking, nevermore. This I said, engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I said divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer swung by angels whose faint footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, Thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, think of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempest sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, Desolate, yet all undaunted, 
on this desert land enchanted on this home by horror haunted tell me truly i implore is there is there balm in gilead tell me tell me i implore quoth the raven nevermore prophet said i thing of evil prophet still if bird or devil by that heaven that bends above us by that god we both adore tell this soul with sorrow laden if within the distant aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name lenore clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name lenore quoth the raven nevermore be that word our sign of parting bird or fiend i shrieked up starting get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore leave no black plume as a token of that lie that soul hath spoken leave my loneliness unbroken quit the bust above my door take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door quoth the raven nevermore and the raven never flitting still is sitting still is sitting on the pallid bust of pallas just above my chamber door and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore and of the raven Section 12 of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe The Pit and the Pendulum Impia tortorum longos hicturba furores Sanguinis inoquiae non satieta aluit Sospite non patria facto non funeris antro Mors ubi vira fruit vita salusque patent Quatrain composed for the gates of a market to be erected upon the site of the Jacobin Clubhouse at Paris. I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony, and when they at length unbound me and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death, was the last distinct accentuation which reached my ears. After that, the sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. It conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution, perhaps from its association, in fantasy, with the burr of a mill-wheel. This only for a brief period, for presently I heard no more. Yet, for a while, I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration, I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I traced these words, and thin, even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with a delicate locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered because no sound succeeded. I saw, too, for a few moments of delirious horror, the soft a nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the apartment. And then, 
my vision fell upon the seven tall candles upon the table. At first they wore the aspect of charity, and seemed white and slender angels who would save me. But then, all at once, there came a most deadly nausea over my spirit, and I felt every fibre in my frame thrill as if I touched the wire of a galvanic battery, while the angel forms became meaningless spectres, with heads of flame, and I saw that from them there would be no help. And there stole into my fancy, like a rich musical note, the thought of what sweet rest there must be in the grave. The thought came gently and steadily, and it seemed long before it attained full appreciation. But just as my spirit came at length properly to feel and entertain it, the figures of the judges vanished, as if magically, from before me. The tall candles sank into nothingness. Their flames went out utterly. The blackness of darkness supervened. All sensations appeared swallowed up in a mad, rushing descent, as of the soul into Hades. Then silence and stillness. Night were universal. I had swooned, but still will not say that all of consciousness was lost. What of it there remained I will not attempt to define, or even to describe. Yet all was not lost. In the deepest slumber, no. In delirium, no. In a swoon, no. In death, no. Even in the grave, all is not lost. Else there is no immortality for man. Arousing from the most profound of slumbers, we break the gossamer web of some dream. Yet, in a second afterward, so frail may that web have been, we remember not that we have dreamed. In the return to life from the swoon, there are two stages. First, that of the sense of mental, or spiritual. Secondly, that of the sense of physical existence. It seems probable that if, upon reaching the second stage, we could recall the impressions of the first, we should find these impressions eloquent in memories of the gulf beyond. And that gulf is... what? How, at least, shall we distinguish its shadows from those of the tomb? But if the impressions of what I have termed the first stage are not, at will, recalled, yet, after long interval, do they not come unbidden while we marvel whence they come? He who has never swooned is not he who finds strange palaces and wildly familiar faces in coals that glow, is not he who beholds floating in mid-air the sad visions that many may not view, is not he who ponders over the perfume of some novel flower is not he whose brain grows bewildered with the meaning of some musical cadence which has never before arrested his attention. Amid frequent and thoughtful endeavours to remember, amid earnest struggles to regather some token of the state of seeming nothingness into which my soul had lapsed, there have been moments when I have dreamed of success. There have been brief, very brief periods, when I have conjured up remembrances which the lucid reason of a later epoch assures me could have had reference only to that condition of seeming unconsciousness. These shadows of memory tell, indistinctly, of tall figures that lifted and bore me in silence down, down, still down, till a hideous dizziness suppressed me at the mere idea of the interminableness of the descent. They tell also of a vague horror at my heart, on account of that heart's unnatural stillness. Then comes a sense of sudden motionlessness throughout all things, as if those who bore me a ghastly train had outrun in their descent the limits of limitless, and paused from the wearisomeness of their toil. After this I call to mind flatness and dampness, and then all is madness, the madness of a memory which busies itself 
among forbidden things. Very suddenly there came back to my soul motion and sound, the tumultuous motion of the heart, and, in my ears, the sound of its beating. Then a pause, in which all was blank. Then again sound, and motion, and touch, a tingling sensation pervading my frame. Then the mere consciousness of existence, without thought, a condition which lasted long. Then, very suddenly, thought, and shuddering terror, an earnest endeavor to comprehend my true state. Then a strong desire to lapse into insensibility. Then a rushing revival of soul, and a successful effort to move. And now a full memory of the trial, of the judges, of the sable draperies, of the sentence, of the sickness, of the swoon. Then entire forgetfulness of all that followed, of all that a later day and much earnestness of endeavor have enabled me vaguely to recall. So far I had not opened my eyes. I felt that I lay upon my back, unbound. I reached out my hand, and it fell heavily upon something damp and hard. There I suffered it to remain for many minutes, while I strove to imagine where and what I could be. I longed, yet dared not employ my vision. I dreaded the first glance at objects around me. It was not that I feared to look upon things horrible, but that I grew aghast, lest there should be nothing to see. At length, with a wild desperation in my heart, I quickly unclosed my eyes. My worst thoughts then were confirmed. The blackness of eternal night encompassed me. I struggled for breath. The intensity of the darkness seemed to oppress and stifle me. The atmosphere was intolerably close. I still lay quietly, and made effort to exercise my reason. I brought to mind the inquisitorial proceedings, and attempted from that point to deduce my real condition. The sentence had passed, and it appeared to me that a very long interval of time had since elapsed. Yet not for a moment did I suppose myself actually dead. Such a supposition, notwithstanding what we read in fiction, is altogether inconsistent with real existence. But where and in what state was I? The condemned to death, I knew, perished usually at the autostafé, and one of those had been held on the very night of the day of my trial. Had I been remanded to my dungeon to await the next sacrifice which would not take place for many months? This, I at once saw, could not be. Victims had been in immediate demand. Moreover, my dungeon, as well as all the condemned cells at Toledo, had stone floors, and light was not altogether excluded. A fearful idea now suddenly drove the blood in torrents upon my heart, and for a brief period I once more relapsed into insensibility. Upon recovering, I at once started to my feet, trembling convulsively in every fibre. I thrust my arms wildly above and around me in all directions. I felt nothing, yet dreaded to move a step, lest I should be impeded by the walls of a tomb. Perspiration burst from every pore, and stood in cold big beads upon my forehead. The agony of suspense grew at length intolerable, and I cautiously moved forward, with my arms extended and my eyes straining from their sockets, in hope of catching some faint ray of light. I proceeded for many paces, but still all was blackness and vacancy. I breathed more freely. It seemed evident that mine was not, at least, the most hideous of fates. And now, as I still continued to step cautiously onward, there came thronging upon my recollection a thousand vague rumours of the horrors of Toledo. Of the dungeons there had been strange things narrated. Fables, I had always deemed them. But yet strange, 
and too ghastly to repeat save in a whisper. Was I left to perish of starvation in this subterranean world of darkness, or what fate, perhaps even more fearful, awaited me? That the result would be death, and a death of more than customary bitterness, I knew too well the characters of my judges to doubt. The mode and the hour were all that occupied or distracted me. My outstretched hands at length encountered some solid obstruction. It was a wall, seemingly of stone masonry, very smooth, slimy, and cold. I followed it up, stepping with all the careful distrust with which certain antique narratives had inspired me. This process, however, afforded me no means of ascertaining the dimensions of my dungeon, as I might make its circuit and return to the point whence I had set out, without being aware of the fact. So perfectly uniform seemed the wall. I therefore sought the knife which had been in my pocket, which led into the inquisitorial chamber, but it was gone. My clothes had been exchanged for a wrapper of coarse serge. I had thought of forcing the blade in some minute crevice of the masonry, so as to identify my point of departure. The difficulty, nevertheless, was but trivial, although, in the disorder of my fancy, it seemed at first insuperable. I tore a part of the hem from the robe, and placed the fragment at full length and at right angles with the wall. In groping my way around the prison, I could not fail to encounter this rag upon completing the circuit. So, at least, I thought, but I had not counted upon the extent of the dungeon, or upon my own weakness. The ground was moist and slippery. I staggered onward for some time, when I stumbled and fell. My excessive fatigue induced me to remain prostrate, and sleep soon overtook me as I lay. Upon awakening, and stretching forth an arm, I found beside me a loaf and a pitcher with water. I was too much exhausted to reflect upon the circumstance, but ate and drank with avidity. Shortly afterward I resumed my tour around the prison, and with much toil came at last upon the fragment of the surge. Up to the period when I fell, I had counted fifty-two paces, and upon resuming my walk I had counted forty-eight more, when I arrived at the rag. There were in all, then, a hundred paces, and admitting two paces to the yard, I presumed the dungeon to be fifty yards in circuit. I had met, however, with many angles in the walls, and thus I could form no guess at the shape of the vault, for vault I could not help supposing it to be. I had little object, certainly no hope, in these researches, but a vague curiosity prompted me to continue them. Quitting the wall, I resolved to cross the area of the enclosure. At first I proceeded with extreme caution, for the floor, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. At length, however, I took courage, and did not hesitate to step firmly, endeavouring to cross in as straight a line as possible. I had advanced some ten or twelve paces in this manner, when the remnant of the torn hem of my robe became entangled between my legs. I stepped on it, and fell violently on my face. In the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterward, and while I still lay prostrate, arrested my attention. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison, but my lips and the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. At the same time, my forehead seemed bathed in a clammy vapour, and a peculiar smell of decayed fungus arose to my nostrils. I put forward my arm, and shuddered to find that I had fallen at the very brink of a circular pit, whose extent, of course, I had no means of ascertaining at the moment. Groping about the masonry just below the margin, I succeeded in dislodging a small fragment, and let it fall into the abyss. 
for many seconds i hearkened to its reverberations as it dashed against the sides of the chasm in its descent at length there was a sullen plunge in water succeeded by loud echoes at the same moment there came a sound resembling the quick opening and as rapid closing of a door overhead while a faint gleam of light flashed suddenly through the gloom and as suddenly faded away i saw clearly the doom which had been prepared for me and congratulated myself upon the timely accident by which i had escaped another step before my fall and the world had seen me no more and the death just avoided was of that very character which i had regarded as fabulous and frivolous in the tales respecting the inquisition to the victims of its tyranny there was the choice of death with its direst physical agonies or death with its most hideous moral horrors i had been reserved for the latter by long suffering my nerves had been unstrung until i trembled at the sound of my own voice and had become in every respect a fitting subject for the species of torture which awaited me shaking in every limb i groped my way back to the wall resolving there to perish rather than risk the terrors of the wells of which my imagination now pictured many in various positions about the dungeon in other conditions of mind i might have had courage to end my misery at once by a plunge into one of these abysses but now i was the veriest of cowards neither could i forget what i had read of these pits that the sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan agitation of spirit kept me awake for many long hours but at length i again slumbered upon arousing i found by my side as before a loaf and a pitcher of water a burning thirst consumed me and i emptied the vessel at a draught it must have been drugged for scarcely had i drunk before i became irresistibly drowsy a deep sleep fell upon me a sleep like that of death how long it lasted of course i know not but when once again i unclosed my eyes the objects around me were visible by a wild sulphurous lustre the origin of which i could not at first determine i was enabled to see the extent and aspect of the prison in its size i had been greatly mistaken the whole circuit of its walls did not exceed twenty-five yards for some minutes this fact occasioned me a world of vain trouble vain indeed for what could be of less importance under the terrible circumstances which environed me than the mere dimensions of my dungeon but my soul took wild interest in trifles and i busied myself in endeavours to account for the error i had committed in my measurement the truth at length flashed upon me in my first attempt at exploration i had counted fifty-two paces up to the period when i fell i must have then been within a pace or two of the fragment of surge in fact i had nearly performed the circuit of the vault i then slept and upon awaking i must have returned upon my steps thus supposing the circuit nearly double what it actually was my confusion of mind prevented me from observing that i had begun my tour with the wall to the left and ended it with the wall to the right i had been deceived too in respect to the shape of the enclosure in feeling my way i had found many angles and thus deduced an idea of great irregularity so potent is the effect of total darkness upon one arousing from lethargy or sleep the angles were simply those of a few slight depressions or niches at odd intervals the general shape of the prison was square what i had taken for masonry seemed now to be iron or some other metal in huge plates whose sutures or joints occasioned the depression the entire surface of this metallic enclosure was rudely daubed in all the hideous and repulsive devices to which the charnel superstition of the monks has given rise figures of fiends and aspects of menace 
with skeleton forms, and other more really fearful images, overspread and disfigured the walls. I observed that the outlines of these monstrosities were sufficiently distinct, but that the color seemed faded and blurred, as if from the effects of a damp atmosphere. I now noticed the floor, too, which was of stone. In the center yawned the circular pit from whose jaws I had escaped, but it was the only one in the dungeon. All this I saw indistinctly, and by much effort, for my personal condition had been greatly changed during slumber. I now lay, upon my back, and at full length, on a species of low framework of wood. To this I was securely bound by a long strap resembling a surcingle. It passed in many convolutions about my limbs and body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm, to such extent that I could, by dint of much exertion, supply myself with food from an earthen dish which lay by my side on the floor. I saw, to my horror, that the pitcher had been removed. I say to my horror, for I was consumed with an intolerable thirst. This thirst it appeared to be the design of my persecutors to stimulate, for the food in the dish was meat pungently seasoned. Looking upward, I surveyed the ceiling of my prison. It was some thirty or forty feet overhead, and constructed much as the side walls. In one of its panels, a very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of time, as he is commonly represented, save that, in lieu of a scythe, he held what, at a casual glance, I supposed to be the pictured image of a huge pendulum, such as we see on antique clocks. There was something, however, in the appearance of this machine, which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, for its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward, the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief, and of course, slow. I watched it for some minutes, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder. Wearied at length with observing its dull movement, I turned my eyes upon the other objects in the cell. A slight noise attracted my notice, and, looking to the floor, I saw several enormous rats traversing it. They had issued from the well, which lay just within view to my right. Even then, while I gazed, they came in troops, hurriedly, with ravenous eyes, allured by the scent of the meat. From this it required much effort and attention to scare them away. It might have been half an hour, perhaps even an hour, for I could take but imperfect note of time, before I again cast my eyes upward. What I then saw confounded and amazed me. The sweep of the pendulum had increased in extent by nearly a yard. As natural consequence, its velocity was also much greater. But what mainly disturbed me was the idea that it had perceptibly descended. I now observed, with what horror it is needless to say, that its nether extremity was formed of a crescent of glittering steel, about a foot in length from horn to horn, the horns upward, and the under edge evidently as keen as that of a razor. Like a razor also, it seemed massy and heavy, tapered from the edge into a solid and broad structure above. It was appended to a weighty rod of brass, and the whole hissed as it swung through the air. I could no longer doubt the doom prepared for me by monkish ingenuity and torture. My cognizance of the pit had become known to the inquisitorial agents, the pit whose horrors had been destined for so bold a recusant as myself, the pit typical of hell, and regarded by rumor as the ultima thule of all their punishments. The plunge into this pit I had avoided by the merest of accidents. I knew that surprise, or entrapment into torture, 
formed an important portion of all the grotesquerie of these dungeon deaths. Having failed to fall, it was no part of the demon plan to hurl me into the abyss, and thus, there being no alternative, a different and a milder destruction awaited me. Milder! I half smiled in my agony as I thought of such application of such a term. What boots it to tell of the long, long hours of horror more than mortal, during which I counted the rushing vibrations of the steel, inch by inch, line by line, with a descent only appreciable at intervals that seemed ages, down, and still down it came. Days passed, it might have been that many days passed, ere it swept so closely over me as to fan me with its acrid breath. The odor of the sharp steel forced itself into my nostrils. I prayed, I wearied heaven with my prayer for its more speedy descent. I grew frantically mad, and struggled to force myself upward against the sweep of the fearful scimitar. And then I fell suddenly calm, and lay smiling at the glittering death, as a child at some rare bauble. There was another interval of utter insensibility. It was brief, for, upon again lapsing into life, there had been no perceptible descent in the pendulum. But it might have been long, for I know there were demons who took note of my swoon, and who could have arrested the vibration at pleasure. Upon my recovery, too, I felt very, oh, inexpressibly sick and weak, as if through long inanition. Even amid the agonies of that period, the human nature craved food. With painful effort, I outstretched my left arm, as far as my bonds permitted, and took possession of the small remnant which had been spared me by the rats. As I put a portion of it within my lips, there rushed to my mind a half-formed thought of joy, of hope. Yet what business had I with hope? It was, as I say, a half-formed thought. Man has many such, which are never completed. I felt that it was of joy, of hope, but felt also that it had perished in its formation. In vain I struggled to perfect, to regain it. Long-suffering had nearly annihilated all my ordinary powers of mind. I was an imbecile, an idiot. The vibration of the pendulum was at right angles to my length. I saw that the crescent was designed to cross the region of the heart. It would fray the surge of my robe. It would return and repeat its operations again. And again. Notwithstanding terrifically wide sweeps, some thirty feet or more, and the hissing vigor of its descent, sufficient to sunder the very walls of iron, still the fraying of my robe would be all that, for several minutes, it would accomplish. And at this thought I paused. I dared not go further than this reflection. I dwelt upon it with a pertinacity of attention, as if, in so dwelling, I could arrest here the descent of the steel. I forced myself to ponder upon the sound of the crescent, as it should pass across the garment, upon the peculiar thrilling sensation which the friction of cloth produces on the nerves. I pondered upon all this frivolity until my teeth were on edge. Down, steadily down it crept. I took a frenzied pleasure in contrasting its downward with its lateral velocity. To the right, to the left, far and wide, with the shriek of a damned spirit, to my heart was the stealthy pace of the tiger. I alternately laughed and howled as one or the other idea grew predominant. Down, certainly, relentlessly down. It vibrated within three inches of my bosom. I struggled violently, furiously, to free my left arm. This was free only from the elbow to the hand. I could reach the latter, from the platter beside me to my mouth, with great effort, but no further. Could I have broken the fastenings above the elbow, I would have seized and attempted to arrest the pendulum. I might as well have attempted to arrest an avalanche. Down, 
still unceasingly, still inevitably down. I gasped and struggled at each vibration. I shrank convulsively at its every sweep. My eyes followed its outward or upward whirls with the eagerness of the most unmeaning despair. They closed themselves spasmodically at the descent. Although death would have been a relief, oh, how unspeakable! Still I quivered in every nerve to think how slight a sinking of the machinery would precipitate that keen, glistening axe upon my bosom. It was hope that prompted the nerve to quiver, the frame to shrink. It was hope, the hope that triumphs on the rack, that whispers to the death condemned even in the dungeons of the Inquisition. I saw that some ten or twelve vibrations would bring the steel in actual contact with my robe, and with this observation there suddenly came over my spirit all the keen, collected calmness of despair. For the first time during many hours, or perhaps days, I thought. It now occurred to me that the bandage, or surcingle, which enveloped me, was unique. I was tied by no separate cord. The first stroke of the razor-like crescent athwart any portion of the band would so detach it that it might be unwound from my person by means of my left hand. But how fearful in that case the proximity of the steel, the result of the slightest struggle, how deadly! Was it likely, moreover, that the minions of the torturer had not foreseen and provided for this possibility? Was it probable that the bandage crossed my bosom in track of the pendulum? Dreading to find my faint, and, as it seemed, last hope frustrated, I so far elevated my head as to obtain a distinct view of my breast. The surcingle enveloped my limbs and body, close, in all directions, save in the path of the destroying crescent. Scarcely had I dropped my head back into its original position, when there flashed upon my mind what I cannot better describe than as the half-formed idea of deliverance to which I had previously alluded, and of which a moiety only floated indeterminately through my brain when I raised food to my burning lips. The whole thought was now present, feeble, scarcely sane, scarcely definite, but still entire. I proceeded at once, with the nervous energy of despair, to attempt its execution. For many hours the immediate vincity of the low framework upon which I lay had been literally swarming with rats. They were wild, bold, ravenous, their red eyes glaring upon me, as if they waited but for motionlessness on my part to make me their prey. To what food, I thought, have they been accustomed in the well? They had devoured, in spite of all my efforts to prevent them, all but a small remnant of the contents of the dish. I had fallen into a habitual seesaw, or wave of the hand about the platter, and at length the unconscious uniformity of the movement deprived it of effect. In their voracity the vermin frequently fastened their sharp fangs in my fingers. With the particles of the oily and spicy viand which now remained, I thoroughly rubbed the bandage wherever I could reach it. Then, raising my hand from the floor, I lay breathlessly still. At first the ravenous animals were startled and terrified at the change, at the cessation of movement. They shrank alarmedly back. Many sought the well. But this was only for a moment. I had not counted in vain upon their voracity. Observing that I remained without motion, one or two of the boldest leapt upon the framework and smelt at the surcingle. This seemed the signal for a general rush. Forth from the well they hurried in fresh troops. They clung to the wood. They overran it and leapt in hundreds upon my person. The measured movement of the pendulum disturbed them not at all. Avoiding its strokes, they busied themselves with the anointed bandage. They pressed, they swarmed upon me, in never-accumulating heaps. They writhed upon my throat, their cold lips sought my own. I was half-stifled by their thronging pressure, disgust, 
for which the world has no name, swelled my bosom, and chilled, with a heavy clamminess, my heart. Yet one minute, and I felt that the struggle would be over. Plainly I perceived the loosening of the bandage. I knew that in more than one place it must already be severed. With a more than human resolution, I lay still. Nor had I erred in my calculations, nor had I endured in vain. I at length felt that I was free. The surcingle hung in ribbons from my body, but the stroke of the pendulum already pressed upon my bosom. It had divided the surge of the robe, it had cut through the linen beneath. Twice again it swung, and a sharp sense of pain shot through every nerve. But the moment of escape had arrived. At a wave of my hand, my deliverers hurried tumultuously away. With a steady movement, cautious, silent, shrinking and slow, I slid from the embrace of the bandage and beyond the reach of the scimitar. For the moment, at least, I was free. Free, and in the grasp of the Inquisition. I had scarcely stepped from my wooden bed of horror upon the stone floor of the prison when the motion of the hellish machine ceased, and I beheld it drawn up by some invisible force through the ceiling. This was a lesson which I took desperately to heart. My every motion was undoubtedly watched. Free! I had but escaped death in one form of agony, to be delivered unto worse than death in some other. With that thought I rolled my eyes nervously around on the barriers of iron that hemmed me in. Something unusual, some change which, at first, I could not appreciate distinctly, it was obvious, had taken place in the apartment. During this period I became aware, for the first time, of the origin of the sulphurous light which illumined the cell. It proceeded from a fissure, about half an inch in width, extending entirely around the prison at the base of the walls, which thus appeared, and were, completely separated from the floor. I endeavoured, but of course in vain, to look through the aperture. As I arose from the attempt, the mystery of the alteration in the chamber broke at once upon my understanding. I have observed that, although the outlines of the figures upon the walls were sufficiently distinct, yet the colours seemed blurred and indefinite. These colours had now assumed, and were momentarily assuming, a startling and most brilliant intensity that gave to the spectral and fiendish portraitures an aspect that might have thrilled even firmer nerves than my own. Demon eyes, of a wild and ghastly vivacity, glared upon me in a thousand directions, where none had been visible before, and gleamed with the lurid luster of a fire that I could not force my imagination to regard as unreal. Unreal! Even while I breathed, there came to my nostrils the breath of the vapor of heated iron! A suffocating odor pervaded the prison. A deeper glow settled each moment in the eyes that glared at my agonies. A richer tint of crimson diffused itself over the pictured horrors of blood. I panted. I gasped for breath. There could be no doubt of the design of my tormentors. Oh, most unrelenting! Oh, most demoniac of men! I shrank from the glowing metal to the center of the cell. Amid the thought of the fiery destruction that impended, the idea of the coolness of the well came over my soul like balm. I rushed to its deadly brink. I threw my straining vision below. The glare from the enkindled roof illumined its inmost recesses. Yet, for a wild moment, did my spirit refuse to comprehend the meaning of what I saw. At length it forced. It rested its way into my soul. It burned itself in upon my shuddering reason. Oh, for a voice to speak! Oh, horror! Oh, any horror but this! With a shriek I rushed from the margin and buried my face in my hands, weeping bitterly. The heat rapidly increased, and once again I looked up, shuddering as if with a fit of the og. There had been a second change in the cell, and now the change was obviously in the form. As before, 
it was in vain that I, at first, endeavored to appreciate or understand what was taking place. But not long was I left in doubt. The inquisitorial vengeance had been hurried by my twofold escape, and there would be no more dallying with the king of terrors. The room had been square. I saw that two of its iron angles were now acute, two, consequently, obtuse. The fearful difference quickly increased with a low rumbling or moaning sound. In an instant, the apartment had shifted from its form into that of a lozenge. But the alteration stopped not here. I neither hoped nor desired it to stop. I could have clasped the red walls to my bosom as a garment of eternal peace. Death, I said, any death but that of the pit. Fool! Might I have not known that into the pit it was the object of the burning iron to urge me? Could I resist its glow? Or, if even that, could I withstand its pressure? And now, flatter and flatter grew the lozenge, with a rapidity that left me no time for contemplation. Its centre, and, of course, its greatest width, came just over the yawning gulf. I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me resistlessly onward. At length, for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony of my soul found vent in one long, loud, and final scream of despair. I felt that I tottered upon the brink. I averted my eyes. There was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast, as of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating, as of a thousand thunders. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell, fainting, into the abyss. It was that of General Lasalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hands of its enemies. End of The Pit and the Pendulum End of Creepy Tales by Edgar Allan Poe